You are listening to another episode of the Darkest Hour Podcast, the show that delivers a loving but extremely thorough and meticulous autopsy of the horror films that have caught our eye from the past and present. Tonight, we are recording the grand finale of our extremely, extremely thorough analysis of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. And thus, we are bringing down the curtain on our season. Every night is Halloween. We will come back after this to do more of a larger recap. Uh, The Machete Awards, all of our longtime listeners will recognize that uh, is the occasion. And we'll hand out awards for the best kills, the most uh, interesting Michael interpretations that we've seen along the way, and all the best sidekick characters... And we'll also kind of roll in, just as a little bonus, a little analysis of Wes Craven's Scream. Halloween looms large over that film, and it's sort of attempted reinvention of the slasher genre. So that's after this, but tonight it's just all about Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. And we, uh, we had some technical difficulties late in, last pod, in our last pod, but if you haven't listened to that yet, double back and check out that episode where we deal with the first, uh, I don't know, half hour or so of this film and raise a lot of big picture questions. But just uh, to reset the table here, I'm John Evans, and I am joined by my two co-hosts, Vic Wheat and Rich Eckersley. Guys, hope you're ready to get back into Halloween a few days after the actual holiday and um, probably a while since you guys have seen the movie, but hopefully it's all still fresh in your minds Rich, how you doing tonight, man? I know you're a little under the weather. Thanks for soldiering through. I know. I'm I'm doing great. I'm hanging in here. I'm I'm still here. The <laughs> I have not fallen to the same fate as the uh all the other mysterious deaths of previous co-hosts. Uh, so I'm fighting through this. I am excited. I, I do have a pad of paper here with a bunch of notes about this movie, and it's it's like reading a letter to from myself in the past <laughs> to myself today. So I'm excited to see what I thought. I'm glad you haven't succumbed to bubonic plague, which of course is what you have. So you, you'll get we'll get one more episode out of you, but that's yeah. probably it. Uh, Vic, around. <laughs> Vic, how are you tonight, man? I'm I'm doing well. Uh, I I am surviving in a house of plague, where literally everyone else, with the possible exception of the cat, although it's a little hard to tell, is sick with uh, strep throat. So I'm able to to speak. Uh, so that's good. And uh, that's yeah, really all we uh, need you for, Vic. That's all we need. Exactly. You for. Yeah, it's I could be in a hospital bed uh, in traction, but as long as you can get this microphone in front of me, I'll be on this podcast, guys. <laughs> Outstanding. This movie definitely stimulated some cool conversation the first time. I definitely have a lot more that fascinated me in the second half of this film. Uh, it's not a perfect movie, as I'm sure everyone who listened to our last show and or has seen the movie themselves probably knows. But it's it's fucking balls to the wall, man. And this is one of the nastier, scarier Michaels, if not the absolutely most physically intimidating and terrifying Michael of all. That's that's I'll I'll, I'll start there. Do you guys disagree with that? How, how do you feel about that statement, Vic? 
I think that's a fair statement. People keep trying to fuck with Michael and don't seem to acknowledge the fact that he's the Hulk. But the number of people who are just like, yeah, you dirty fucking hippie, get out of here. And I'm like, who would talk to Tyler Maine that way? Like, even if he hadn't had a shower, maybe especially if he hadn't, you know, if he'd been living in the wild for uh, a year. That just struck me as as something strange that happens a few times in this. He's yeah. a big he's a big fucking guy, and I really believe that he could stomp someone's skull into uh, jelly. <laughs> yeah, it feels like Rob Zombie is trying to do this kind of uh, commentary on be nice to homeless guys, you know, because you never know what might happen or, or something like that with, with how these characters generally treat him like an annoyance or a subhuman person. And, and they pay the price for that, uh, for their intolerance. I think part of it is also just Rob Zombie's vision of the world. There's definitely a certain, like, hillbilly bravado, especially with, with men who will just, like, shoot their mouth off to anyone who's, you know, standing in their way. The fact that everyone just kind of, like, applies that to Michael, like, unilaterally, like, they would treat anyone that way. So, like, Michael isn't any different. Like, you have to talk a big game to survive in this world. I think he's he's pretty imposing and terrifying. A little further down the way, obviously, we start seeing him without his mask a lot more. I guess I have have sort of mixed feelings as to whether that makes him more or or less frightening that you can see him as more of a human being. He certainly comes off as more when you see him as a human being without his mask on. He almost comes off as a little more jaded and and bitter. He's always sort of like slogging across a field somewhere, dragging something behind him and his hair is like growing over his face. And he just looks kind of crotchety. (laughs) yeah he has this kind of permanent scowl right yeah the kills that he has in this do do seem especially like ballistic and brutal and so that also adds to his how frightening he comes off i think i used the phrase visceral berserker uh whether that was recorded (laughs) or not but uh, Uh (laughs) you noticed it last time and yeah that's kind of what i'm i'm getting at too in that like he's Maybe he's not as scary in sort of the spooky ways, like the sort of ethereal boogeyman in the shadows, stealthy thing kind of a way that some of the some of the previous Michaels I think captured better than this interpretation. But but this Michael, just in a you do not want to mess with this guy uh, way, like the way that a, a Velociraptor or something is terrifying because it's just going to shred you, it's just going to annihilate you. And there's no there's no beating it. And in that way, the savagery of him, I think, is is just scary on a on a more primal level. Not it's not not a, you know, eerie, spooky, uh, mythological, creeping dread kind of a thing. It's more like, oh, my God, fight or flight instinct kicks in in a big way. Going back to what what I think was the first kill in the movie with the paramedic that was in the van during the, the car accident. It's like it's not enough to kill him. Like he gets out of the van and then saws the guy's head off with a piece of glass, and then walks around with the head. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like he's, I feel like he's going above and beyond. <laughs> yeah, this is probably the goriest Halloween film ever, and we're we're sort of in what Texas Chainsaw implies kind of a territory where just human bodies are just meant to be turned into jewelry and furniture, and, and it's all just this very easy physical process of, of doing so. 
Uh-huh. Raw material. Exactly. I think we left off when we were going scene by scene with um, Loomis is presenting an interview that he had with uh, Michael when he was a child in the institution. He's presenting this footage to a room full of media as he's flogging his new book, which is about to come out. And as we kind of discuss with the opening scene, which is another, uh, it's an outright flashback to the sanitarium and Michael's early incarceration. The question is always, why are we seeing this scene? Like what is the filmmaker's intent in going into the past and saying this scene that we're going to show you is, is going to be relevant to what you're watching and what's going to come. And the idea is we get Michael Myers' reaction to his mother's death here. This is the first time we've seen that. And the new version of young Michael is uh, getting the news that his mother has passed away. We don't know. He doesn't say, obviously. Loomis doesn't say that she killed herself. And Michael doesn't react at all beyond expressing his certainty that his mother will be back and he'll see her again. This news doesn't seem to bother him in the slightest. And I think the obvious implication here is that he's already having these dreams, as he mentioned to his mother in the opening scene, where he's seeing his mom in the white dress, the whole ghost mom thing that we're going to become very well acquainted with watching this movie. He was seeing that before she was even dead. And so he has the absolute certainty that she'll be back. It lends itself to this very ambiguous relationship to the supernatural uh, that this movie has. I think it introduces a lot of ideas. It doesn't explain them. They don't even, I'm not even sure exactly how well they pay off. It feels a little bit like, you know, a Lucio Fulci kind of, he just wants the imagery and the light and the ideas and, and, He's he's setting all these things all these things up so that he can play with them tonally and visually, but in terms of how they actually pay off in a narrative sense, he leaves that pretty vague, and I'm actually okay with that. Me too. I mean, I noticed that Loomis doesn't have a lot of compassion there, which is more new Loomis than old Loomis, even though that was supposed to be old Loomis, but this movie is all about selling us on his kind of selfish amorality, Loomis's. But I was struck, you would think that hearing this, Michael might be wrestling with some guilt over his mother's death because his rejection of her is what caused her suicide, in my mind. When he stabs the nurse, like uh, he completely goes ballistic and turns on her too after she pulls his mask off. And she's just crushed by that, obviously. At the least, he would have to sense that possibility. The other reading of it is that his his delusions have started, you know, fairly young, and he is already detached. He doesn't even feel anything for his for his actual like flesh and blood mother, uh, on account of the fact that he's already started to create this this dream world for himself, um, where he's communicating with an alternate version of her. We know he loves his mother. He says that in this movie. Is it that like he loses touch with the real her and and fixates on this this version of her that actually supports what he's doing because that's what this version does. 
could it be that he actually kind of replaced her in his mind almost immediately or even before she even died with sort of this perception of her that fits his reality better? Perhaps. I mean, I thought that moment was really interesting in the previous film where where he screams her because it does seem to kind of be a left turn from how he had been treating her previously. Mm -hmm. But it did feel like the moment where you were expected to understand that the the human part of him was gone at that point. He had departed and become this wholly different creature. Um, And so it makes sense that when he became something else, whatever that is, the shadow, then he also created like an alternate version of his mother at the same time. I can see that interpretation. Well, and you know that in these visions, he obviously has this child version of himself that accompanies his mother everywhere. And so it's also like at that same moment, Michael's image of himself became frozen in time. Like mm-hmm. this is a, this is a snapshot of Michael and his mother as his, you know, as his mind has created it at that moment. And that's what he's still carrying with him, you know, 20 years later or whatever. Yeah. Uh, Loomis, for his part, um, and he seems like a complete hack as a clinician here. He says that Freud would have a field day with this one. And he's referring to the fact that Michael is in complete denial of his mother's suicide. But of course, he doesn't, Loomis doesn't know about this kind of prescient, the visions that, that Michael is having of his, the new incarnation of his mother, which of course does return. Like we talked about last time, unless you believe in some kind of really, really out there psychology of that, that we can, I mean, I guess it kind of gets down to the Jungian concept that there are certain things that are shared. And then you have to say, well, maybe a brother and sister could share things. And then you have to get absurdly implausibly specific with it. But as we all know, the movie is going to get to a point where Lori is talking to ghost mom completely seeing ghost mom as Michael sees her and having a conversation with her. So there's that. (laughs) That's what I was saying about how the movie plays with these ideas. You can't, I don't think, I don't think zombie wants us to nail down exactly what's happening. I think that he's, he's left it purposefully vague that he's pulled the things that he wants and he's put it out there and you and me and everybody else can do what we want with it, which is, I suppose what we do here. Right, and I think I said last time that I'm totally okay with that as a filmmaker's impulse where you just say, look, um, I want you to interpret this. You know, like I'm creating something and I don't even fully know where the impulse comes from. This is what I was compelled or motivated to do. This is what was interesting to me. Now, you know, go go draw your conclusions. And I, I, I love that, but unfortunately – He's said some things in commentary and, and whatnot that say, oh, no, this is actually what, what it was or this is what I was thinking. And he sort of ruins it a little bit because <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't fit at all. But I'll still say, even though he's saying that crap, like he really he, – he, he doesn't know or care either. And he really is shooting from the hip here and we can, we can make of it what we will. But anyway, so moving on, a couple interesting things are said here in this conver- in this whole presentation that Loomis is giving, even though it's painfully awkward. He says 
that more or less he, he kind of butchers this George Bernard Shaw quote. And the gist of it is that killing is something that humanity has perfected. And Michael Myers is right up there with pestilence, famine, and the rest of what he doesn't say this, but that those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's kind of interesting to bring up a horse in this movie specifically with its sort of horse obsession. But (laughs) (laughs) I thought that was kind of cool that Michael has become or always was the quintessence of mankind's ability to be a scourge of humanity, like to, to be an incredibly efficient killer. He's right up there with a force of nature, I guess, at this point. Seems kind of like a little bit of a stretch on Lewis's part, given that Michael killed several people, but not that many, not compared to pestilence. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, maybe if you looked at the entire Myers verse, like all the different versions of him and, and, you know, 13 movies or whatever it is, maybe then, but yeah, not in this particular timeline. Uh, That's a really good point. And he also says that Loomis says that he doesn't feel personally responsible for Michael Myers' murders. And this line, I just it's 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 cringy. I'm not a psychic Sherlock Holmes playing Superman. <laughs> Where did that come from? There's a, a repetitiveness and it's an almost monotony to it that I found less engaging this time. That mm-hmm. sort of knowing what was happening and then watching it play out all of the scenes with Dr. Loomis really are just setting up what a selfish, greedy asshole he is. Just scene after scene after scene, and there's an enormous amount of it. Like, his PR rep exists and has huge amounts of time, mostly to be like, look, I'm just a paid stooge, and even I think you're a slimy prick. Well, that's a gross turn of phrase. I'm sorry. but uh, Vivid. Vivid. Very vivid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> as much as I, as I kind of enjoy McDowell's performance and everything else, if you think about where he pushes the narrative, all we really get is the revelation that Lori is Michael's sister comes in the book. Even that doesn't really advance the plot. All it really does is, is drive her to this party to go get drunk, which she probably would have done anyway. And then for him to have this sort of redemptive moment at the end, which obviously we'll get to. But it's, I feel like as we, as we go through these scenes, just notice how every one of these scenes with Dr. Loomis is just him being unbelievably self-centered and incapable of empathy or thought or anything else until Chris Hardwick and Weird Al shame him into having a soul. It's not just that because you could say that the point – of these monotonous scenes is that they're all making that exact same point where he's constantly called on his shit over and over and over, you know, everyone, the world seems to be telling him what a prick he is, you know, it, and it culminates in weird Al snapping him or whatever like yeah. the line is that Hardwick says, like you just got snapped by weird Al Yankovic, but that's the pinnacle of this. But all of these scenes, are confronting him and he resists and he resists and he resists. And eventually he breaks down and realizes, oh shit, no, I actually am a colossal asshole. And then that motivates him to take action. But the, oh, the kitty is here. Ryan. That's a special guest appearance by Savannah, the three-legged cat. (laughs) She's, She's a regular. 
She, John, she heard what you were saying and she disagrees. So we cut from this ridiculous over the top scene to Michael walking as if on a long journey, which Vic alluded to earlier and his ghost mother, and they're going to meet up in a barn and suddenly Michael Myers, this is his new look. He's wearing a hood, but no mask. And that idea is that he's been walking around for, depending on what version of this film you're watching one year or two years, he's got the full beard and a hood. He sort of looks like an 18th, century fur trapper this is the post shape michael and he has his eerie little powwow in a barn with ghost mom and he gets his marching orders when she says michael halloween is coming you have to get ready we're counting on you to bring us home this year which sort of begs the question does home mean haddonfield does it mean all of them dead all of the Myers family dead and on the other side again positing the idea that there is some bridge that these characters cross between life and death it's not heaven or hell really but there's something other perhaps anyway the goal is that they'll be on this other side together I apologize. I can't remember if I said this in part one of this podcast. Listeners know. I go back and listen to these podcasts sometimes because I like to hear just sort of how the how the podcast has evolved and what we're doing. And I realize that when we split the podcast into two parts, I make the same point in both podcasts, and I'm sorry. <laughs> so full disclosure, yeah. apology in advance. There's a, there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of drinking and a lot of time in between. So anyways, if this is redundant, I'm sorry. What pops into my head when I get these – and they're beautiful shots. I mean there really yeah. is. This is a visually stunning movie in a way that I think many horror films are not. It really has almost a sense of epicness about it yeah. uh, that I that I really, really appreciated. But I really thought of uh, Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction saying, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth, you know, like Kane in Kung Fu. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I thought of. It's just Michael's like, you know, I'm going to go from town to town and get in adventures and shit. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is kind of what he's been doing. And we sort of get a sense that some people have noticed him and he hasn't done a whole ton of killing, but he's been kind of in a period of, of I wouldn't call it rest per se, but a, an, an inactive period. And yeah. Ghost Mom call it, calls him to like step it up here, right? Yeah. He's, this, he's, been, he's been wandering from barn to barn, apparently. <laughs> this is the scene where Wendy, my wife, made an, an astute point. She paused the DVD and said, this movie's fucking stupid. <laughs> was there anything more to that point or she no she kind of she kind of left it at that but i feel like i got the subtext <laughs> um, i think i think wendy could 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 cover this movie in one podcast not a two-part <laughs> this is a, this is a polarizing moment i mean i guess you have seen mom and the white horse before but like it's like well i guess i guess this is the route we're going so either at this point you're either on board with it or you're not uh, she was not um, I was willing to give it a shot. I mostly felt like this scene survived on the choice to put uh, young Michael in front of the the older Michael, uh, like literally placing the the actor of child Michael in front of him, um, which gave you some subtext as to like how he was how Michael was interpreting the events, which is interesting. I don't feel like there's been an attempt 
except for maybe in the first version of zombies film where you were really attempting to get inside of Michael's head and have any understanding of what he was thinking or feeling. So it's kind of unprecedented in a way that's sort of cool for the series. Well, and it also just suggests that there's a duality here, you know, that the shape isn't really present. There's the, as we know him with the mask, like neither version of him is wearing the Michael Myers mask. And I think there, this series always sort of suggests that the mask is like when they put the mask on, whether it's little Michael or big Michael, that that's shifting into like, it's like that's the really bad version of Michael. And there, there might even be three incarnations of Michael here. We have little Michael who can still speak, who's the most connected to, to their mother. And then there's the sort of big bearded homeless Michael who's kind of, you know, somewhere in between the two. And then there's when he puts the mask on, it's like there's no more fucking around. He's just going to kill you. Doesn't mean he won't kill you without the mask on, but he even takes it to another level when he puts the, the mask on. I also made a note here that it's been a minute since I've watched it, but there it seems like there's echoes of the Jason Voorhees and his mother in this too, mm-hmm. even down to just the setting, like the, the, the barn and the mother speaking to him and the mother speaking to him as a child. That's a really um, good point. I didn't even think of that, but yeah, like it's all about hearing his mother's voice, Jason Voorhees, right? I mean, at least in the early films, mm-hmm. kill Jason, kill, kill. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a question. So I, I didn't track exactly what uh, ghost mom said, but you said that she said, we're counting on you. And my question is, who's we? I think it was the the young Michael, even though he also seems to be a, a, a voice for bearded homeless Michael as well. I wonder how split the sort of personality of Michael is is fragmented here, because that is a really good point. I do think it's important to note that Judith is not here. His sister is not here. And I mean, I think that she could be referring to Lori, Angel Boo, um, that like by, because I think it really is a, a triumvirate of Ghost Mom, Michael, and Lori slash Angel Boo. So that is the family unit. And I, I would say, even in Rich's interpretation of this all being psychological for Michael, I think that you could posit that the theory is that he has some fragments of humanity left within him and his memory of being human was when he had a relationship with both of them. Like he he had nothing negative uh, towards the innocent baby. He had moments of compassion or love even for the, the child, his sister, his baby sister. And of course, you know, he had a ambiguous, somewhat incestuous, but 90% positive relationship with uh, Deborah, his, with his mother. That That is the core trio. Like that is sort of, what he's trying to recreate or get back to or reconnect with. I just think it would be awesome if you could zoom in on those scenes and see like ghost Bill Forsyth in a wheelchair, like struggling to try and catch up <laughs> ghost Ronnie. He's like uh, the, the star Wars hallucinations that Luke Skywalker has. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The four, the force ghost. Right. Hang on. God damn it. I'm coming. Wait, <laughs> No, kill him, Michael, no, kill him. Look at the dumper on her. 
that, that's a, I feel like that's actually a good transition into the next scene because I believe mm-hmm. the next thing we get is two drunken rednecks and their sister, daughter, I think wife. It's a daughter. I think it's a daughter. Yeah. Yeah. She has a hilarious uh, name. I think it's like Jaylene or something. Number one, one of the notes I made is th- there's a shot of them as the truck sort of rolls up of Michael framed in the headlights. That's a, just an, a, another amazing shot. Like it's just such a great, powerful image. But this once again, and this is what I talked about the repetitiveness. Like this feels like here are a collection of of mostly awful people out to do terrible things. They, it cracked me up how quick they jumped to the conclusion of like, well, we just need to need to beat the living shit out of this guy. <laughs> yeah, like they just they just get out of the car. And as I recall, are essentially the, are just like, what the fuck are you doing in our way? And then immediately start beating him with a crowbar. Well, no, there's a little backstory in the dialogue when they're driving up to him, which is like they've had some kind of – and this is doubling back to the theme perhaps that Zombie is exploring – that this guy has been encroaching on their land, uh, a drifter – and people do get weird about stuff like this, you know, like somebody who seems uh, powerless in a societal sense, someone with no rights or privileges, someone the world doesn't care about, who doesn't have an identity of value is, I don't know, taking a shit on their land and, you know, sleeping under a tree or maybe eating some props or whatever the hell is happening on this land. And they're really offended by it. And they're going to make sure this fucking drifter moves on. I mean, I actually, I, I find it completely plausible um, based on our, our country and, and the way shit rolls downhill and how people like this would react to an interloper. Uh, even yes, he's, you know, seven feet tall and Nothing but rippling muscle, but you know this guy he's the trespasser, and he's he's the kind of person that society won't miss, so they're gonna they're gonna punish him. One of the actors in the truck is a guy that I was like, I know that guy and he's been in a thousand things that I've seen. His name is Mark Boone jr mm-hmm. but what i what I remembered him from the reason I was staring at him is he's the guy who runs the hotel that Guy Pierce is staying in in memento. That's renting him like three rooms because he has the memory because he has the memory problem. <laughs> oh, he's also on uh, a couple of Kurt Sutter shows, uh, you know, Sons of Anarchy, and the other guy, Vic. Do you recognize the other guy? Because you just I, mentioned a movie he was in. I don't. Pulp Fiction. Who is bring is out, it? bring out the Gimp. He's, is it that guy? He's one oh, of wow. the. He's one of the two guys in Pulp Fiction that Holy. Bruce Willis encounters, and he also has a, a long and rich IMDb. Yeah, this this movie, I think we talked about it last time, like this movie makes subtler use of its bit parts, like it's not smacking you in the face, like, oh yeah, there's that guy from from, from that horror movie, haha. Ha. Um like but they're all like really decorated character actors who are very familiar from television and film and are, are real pros. And yeah, both of these guys fit that bill. I was curious, like, is this mistaken identity? Like, was it Michael who's been um, hanging around this property, being a pain in the well, guy's ass, or is it just like they're assuming it, it is? Like that's I mean, it seems like it probably is actually him. I mean, what else has he been doing? He's just right. been squatting for what two years? Yeah, yeah, and he's about to spoiler. I think Vic mentioned this last time, but he's about to eat their dog, so he probably you know he has been fulfilling his biological needs 
on this property uh, because this is more or less the first time we see him. He's been living well outside of Haddonfield in the sticks, and this is just the early stages of his journey back. It's interesting that that's the thing that, that we keep coming back to in these movies. It's like, oh, and like, by the way, he eats dogs. Oh, there's a dog. No, he ate it. I don't know. It's uh... <laughs> it's funny. It's almost like a defining characteristic. Like one yeah. of the things you would say about Michael Myers: diet, dogs, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, because it's what does he do? He he pins people to the wall and he cocks his head at him funny, and he has to sit up in the background of a shot once or twice, and he's got, he's got to eat a dog. Like that's just those are yeah. that's just that's just good fan service, that's, you know. That's on the short list. Yeah, Michael Myers mannerisms. He's, he's been known to eat rats. Oh yeah, that's oh true. yeah. He'll take a rat in a pinch, but if there's a dog available, that's his first choice. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, oh, these guys start giving him a major beatdown, and he takes it. You know, they're they're hammering him with a tire iron and a bat, and he never makes a, a sound. And what, I think the most interesting dynamic in the scene is that the girl is like really trying to save him and intervene on his behalf to the point where after they're done hammering on him, she comes up to him and says, are you okay? That's a nice twist on the usual Michael Myers and his victims uh, dynamic. You, you don't see that because he's not moving for a while. He gathers himself. But what does he do, guys? What does he do? He pulls the hood and puts on the mask, he shifts gears. Because it's Halloween, or whether he just took a beatdown, I don't know. But the, the mask goes on, the knife comes out, and now he's in Michael Myers mode. I find it interesting when you have characters that actually are kind to him, or that try to help, or, you know, I mean, the, the later on when we'll get to it, but I, I said this last time, I said this last time, and I'm aware of it. You know, the worst thing you can do in one of these movies is stop to help Laurie Strode. You are going to die if you're like, here, come on, I'll take you to the hospital. Like, nope, you're not going to make it. Sorry, Mr. Uh, parking lot attendant or whatever. But most of the people, in, especially in Zombie's vision of this, are just awful assholes. Uh, and, and so you get this feeling that they deserve it. But there are occasionally these people like this girl who are actually decent people who you kind of like and you see them trying to be better and there is no sparing them. Like they don't even get a quick death because they were decent. Like it's – you can see that morality just plays no no part in Michael's attitude toward killing and victims. Uh, it reminds me a little bit of the scene in Friday the 13th 6 when uh, uh, Jason lives when he goes through the cabin with all the kids. And you're like, holy shit, he's going to kill all the kids. But of course he doesn't. And that was somehow an expression of something inside of him. But in this case, it was something that like kids were off limits and that gave him a little bit of depth. And I think we have the inverse of that with Michael, which is even if you're kind to me, even if you try to help that does not move me in any way. So I think it, it, whereas for Jason, it gave some tiny glimmer of humanity inside what was otherwise a killing machine. This scene with Michael reveals that there is nothing except the killing machine. Yeah, it certainly harkens back a bit to like the, the Danny Trejo death in the previous. I was good to you, Mikey. <laughs> Which that, I don't know, that one was a bit of a head scratcher for me 
back then. I, I never understood what exactly was trying to say. I mean, your your point is taken and it, it makes sense. I guess that's the only thing I really can take away from it is that he just has no – Michael Myers has no boundaries. I disagree um, though. I really do. I mean we, we have a bit later on where another trope of all of these movies – sometimes you wonder if Michael if Michael Myers – if Rob Zombie actually watched the previous movies because one of the tropes is – uh, a, a trick-or-treater runs into him on the street at full speed, and he just looks at him and lets them go. That mm-hmm. happens again in this movie. And I think that uh, if you look at the previous film, he went out of his way. And yeah, you can just blame the filmmaker, but I don't, I don't, I don't think that's fair. He goes out of his way not to kill Loomis. And I think that Loomis did have some degree of sympathy from Michael at that point. Like he did give Loomis a shred of credit for what he had been in his life and what he had, how he'd stuck by him for all of those years. And I think that like he easily could have probably should have killed Loomis in the last movie, but did not. And in fact, he even almost goes out of his way. I I won't go so far because it's not motivated, but he doesn't kill Annie either when he really, he could have, but in this movie, certainly in Loomis's case, he gets a, a good reason, and when he gets a second chance, he kills Loomis without the slightest compunction. So I do think there's at least enough going on here to say it's not a blanket statement, but I think that this girl falls short of whatever his standard or criterion is for not killing someone. Part of it might be as easy as she's a girl. You know, like he, he has his killing impulse is sort of a, a, a muted mangled interpretation of sexual desire, right? Like, cause we, we saw it with Judith in the, in the first movie, we saw it to a degree with his mother, or at least that everyone's sexualizing his mother and ramming that in his face. The Michael Myers character all along, even more than Jason, I would say, because Jason, yeah, there's sort of a sexual component, but he's mostly a, a juvenile mind who has just a very primitive reaction to things. But I think that Michael all along has inappropriate sexual desires and does not have any way to act on them <clears throat> except by thrusting with a knife and Instead of his penis. Jesus, John. Wow, hot take. (laughs) (laughs) I think think your theory sort of checks out. I don't think he's saying no to this girl. You really are a shitty person. But, I mean, maybe it is. I mean, she came along. She didn't stop them from attacking him. When he's stabbing her in that primal grunting way that he does at the end of the sequence, I think that's kind of his, his surrogate thing for these desires he doesn't know what know what to do with. I'd like to make a note here on just a technical commentary. In this scene, there is a lot. Now, I made this note several times throughout the movie, but there is an abundance of slow motion that was added after the fact, mm-hmm. like a like a post-affected slow motion, which to me is grossly overused throughout the entire film. And I feel like actually is, speaking of blaming the filmmaker, I personally always find that to be such an amateur move in terms of like directing and cinematography, it's like if, if you're intending for a shot to be in slow motion, then it should be shot that way when mm-hmm. you're out there, not something you're deciding later on in the, in the edit bay and, and giving it like a sort of half-assed rendition. And this movie is filled with it, which seems like it speaks to the attitude that, that Rob Zombie has expressed, which 
kind of felt like he was just making this thing up as he went along. Again, I, I use the phrase shooting from the hip, but that does seem to be his MO, right? Yeah, yeah. he was literally just literally. like shooting it and then like, I'll fix it in post. Yeah, I mean, I don't think he does a lot of storyboards. Let's put it that way. Okay. I agree. The slow motion is weird and, and ineffective and overused. It's kind of a, a dated technique. But we're to Vic's favorite scene in the entire movie now, the pizza scene. <laughs> <laughs> so Annie doesn't know who Lee Marvin is. So not everyone is living in the distant past, I guess, in, in this movie. But we have this kind of interesting juxtaposition between Sheriff Brackett uh, talking about our need to eat meat and the caveman in all of us. And then we're intercutting Michael eating the dog and he's eating it raw. And is that, is that blunt? Is that too on the nose? I don't know. <laughs> You're pointing out that he's eating it raw as if perhaps – if he had cooked the dog, then it would, it would not have been quite so violent. This pizza scene ends with Lori violently throwing up. And thank you, Rob Zombie. I can't stand scenes of people vomiting in movies. And this one was, again, particularly visceral. I, I found myself wondering, is there some connection to Michael eating the dog? Is she having that kind of psychic connection to that? Well, and is that what Yes, what that's the... It? That's the whole point of it. That's why they make a big deal out of her being a vegetarian. Yeah. Is that then he's eating the dog and she's having this reaction to meat because they have that psychic link or whatever you want to call it. I think we're more than toying with the idea of a psychic connection again here. And I do find it funny in just sort of that meta way that Daniel Harris is in this scene the actress who played the character who had the psychic connection to Michael Myers in the fourth and fifth movies. But in this movie, she does not because she is in an alternate reality of the Myers verse where she's playing Annie, a friend of her mother's character in, in her previous incarnation, Annie, who was killed by her uncle right before her first character was even born. And I was kind of sad thinking about this, that we didn't get the Rob Zombie Halloween four where the character of Jamie Lloyd could be reintroduced and maybe Danielle Harris could play her adopted mom in that one. But in, in that, in the zombie version, like Jamie would be this chain smoking foul mouthed hoodlum child or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're playing with like very similar elements as weirdly enough, Halloween four and five, uh, which again, cause I don't think Rob zombie uh, considered himself a, a student or a disciple of the franchise. I, I think it feels more random than anything else. It's just strange that it's Daniel Harris involved in a plot element that's right from her, her two movies. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page and literally they have highlighted the quote, don't feel hindered by any of the rules we've had in the past. I want this to be your vision and I want you to express that vision. And that was Maleka Cod speaking to Rob Zombie about Halloween 2. And so what Rob Zombie did was borrow elements from Halloween 4 and 5. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, right. It could be a coincidence, but I don't know. My My bigger takeaway, like in terms of liking the scene is that it's so obvious that Annie is over the taking care of Lori thing for two fucking years and she doesn't appreciate it at all. Yeah. And I know that this was, I'm, I'm probably retreading stuff that we talked about last time, but I know that this was again, one of the big differences between the theatrical cut is that in the theatrical cut, that tension wasn't there as much. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the dialogue had been retooled to make it, make them friends 
And in this version, it's all very adversarial and very like she's sort of burnt out on taking care of Lori and Lori's burnt out on her trying to be her mom. And this certainly seems like the more interesting way to play it. I haven't seen the theatrical cut, but it sort of baffles me. What is the point of it? Because they're trying to get to the same ending, but they don't lay any of the same track between the cuts. And this version... It actually, which is now the definitive version, it's the version that, you know, we would easily find, is kind of all about how Lori goes down a very dark road here. And apparently the theatrical cut doesn't have that, which is just kind of mind-blowing to me, really. I see. All right. I disagree. And I actually think I prefer, by and large, I prefer the theatrical cut. And the reasoning is... Number one, the director's cut is almost oppressively dour. Laurie's character goes from barely scraping by in this living hell of her life to not really scraping by (laughs) in, (laughs) in the living hell of her life. Whereas in the theatrical cut, you get the sense that she is starting to put the pieces back together. And that really what – it's that that revelation that she is actually Michael's sister pulls the rug out from under her and that's when she, she really falls. Certainly at the party when you see her getting hammered and just struggling with this with this revelation, to me in the director's cut, she's not really much worse off in, in there than she is in the therapist's office a few hours earlier. I feel like her character has has less of an arc and the movie on the whole is just really really dark to the point where I didn't where I didn't enjoy it as much. But it ends in the same place, right? So doesn't that make the ending more or less like there's some key differences but doesn't yeah. it end with sort of her going around the bend? If you're doing a worse job setting up the ending, a, a more illogical random way, I just I don't know how that can inherently be better. I don't I don't think I I think that it still makes sense but it's more that she winds up there when a week earlier she seemed like she was starting to get her life back together. That makes it more tragic to me. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Then if she was then if she was already then if she was already falling apart. It reminds me of I think it was an interview with Richard Matheson talking about uh, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, which they did, obviously they did uh, in the short story and they did uh, The Twilight Zone with William Shatner. And then they did the one that the Spielberg produced one with John Lithgow. Matheson always said that he preferred the Shatner version over the Lithgow version, which is the only time in history that anyone has ever preferred William <laughs> Shatner to John Lithgow for their acting prowess. But what he said is that Lithgow, when he got on the plane was so nervous and such a wreck that he didn't have anywhere to go when the thing started to appear on the on the wing of the plane. And that's how I feel about this is she's so devastated and crushed and sobbing and on drugs and can't sleep and and hates her friend. And it's, she's in such an awful place that it's like five inches to she's in an insane asylum. Uh, or possibly dead, actually. That's I think, and again, we'll get to that. But, you know, she's in an insane asylum. And I feel like that journey is more interesting if it's a, a bigger fall, if it's a bigger transition than it is in the director's cut. I mean, it certainly makes more conventional sense from a storytelling point of view. This version, the director's cut version, 
it's commitment to the grimness of just this nosedive feels at least like there's a sort of vision to it. Just that relentless. She's just like uh, constantly like sliding further and further down. And frankly, it seems more realistic to me when you have two people in a household that have undergone the same trauma. I mean, I guess really three, like Brad Dorf's character also sort of had to, you know, live through the experience. That's a lot of psychological burden for people to be carrying around. And, and the idea that she sort of has a level of resentment for Annie because Annie's like this constant reminder of the terrible things that happen because of her. It makes more logical sense to me, even if it doesn't provide you with as clean of a, a character arc. Well, I think you're an idiot, Rich. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I bet Danielle Harris uh, prefers the director's cut because she has more scenes and they're better when she's in constant <laughs> conflict with with Laurie. I mean, I think that she almost seems like, why is she even in this movie? And again, you, you make a great point, Vic, and you, you're making me want to see the theatrical cut because I, I don't think I, I ever have. Like, just to see how it plays to me now. But I think that, that, that Daniel Harris's character, if you remove the conflict with Laurie, it's almost an absurd, extraneous character. She hangs around the house for no reason. She's sort of a den mother. And, and then she gets killed in ignominious fashion. Like, at least we have the, the pain, that, again, back to guilt, that we know that Laurie didn't treat her well and didn't, didn't express her true feelings. She's resented uh, and projected on Annie and, and that, that makes her death all the more agonizing both for Annie, uh, both for, well, definitely agonizing for Annie, but both for Lori and, <laughs> and for the audience. <laughs> so I, I just, I think that it's hard for me to imagine it really playing better, but I'm open to it. Cause I think you make a great point that you, the farther a character arcs like up or down, the, the more dramatic and compelling the story is. And you're right. Like she's, if she's already halfway swirling down the drain, like it's, it doesn't have the same resonance as if she's, you know, climbing out of, out of, over the toilet seat. Wow. I'm, I don't know exactly where that metaphor came from. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those things that I felt more strongly about this, watching it again, this most recent time. I felt very put off by this movie. It was a little bit, I remember watching, I think Texas Chainsaw Massacre two twice in two days when I was 14 or something. And after I like I really remember watching it the second time being like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, right. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I need these images in my brain anymore for coming up on the Red Rabbit Inn. And that was where I just I was like, does everyone have to be just an awful, disgusting human being? A really quick uh, side note. I happened to watch the new Child's Play uh, remake uh, last week. More or less the reason that this AI goes as murderously insane as it does, even though it doesn't have the proper safeguards and all that, is that it watches Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 with some of the of the boys' friends. And it the movie cuts together like the most insane uh, <laughs> 25 seconds of that film into sort of this weird, even out of order montage that just tells you the barrage of horror that is being crammed into this robot's uh, consciousness. And that sort of explains 
a lot <laughs> to motivate its behavior, its murderous behavior. So that just struck me as funny that you would bring that movie up specifically. I believe it. If I was going to, if there was a movie I was going to put in front of an innocent artificial intelligence to turn it into a violent murderous being, it, that would, that would be on the list. That would be high on the list. And stretch from that movie is in this film, you know, coincidentally yeah, enough. Cool. There you go. Mm-hmm. Um, hey uh, guys, I just, I just want to point out that the theatrical cut, can apparently only be purchased on Blu-ray in Canada. Wow. So unless you are a Canadian listener, this entire discussion has been a waste of your time. (laughs) (laughs) Even then, probably. (laughs) Well, no, it's, it's available on Amazon. Like the, the digital, the digital version I think is available on Amazon. Well, as as much as I'm into all of this, I'm not sure at this point that I I won't move on. And I have a feeling Vic that you'd like to call a bathroom break or something. (laughs) I I would. Also, but I'll also say uh, if any of our listeners know uh, Danielle Harris, reach out to her and ask her which (laughs) cut of the movie she prefers. And if she'd like to come on the podcast, we'd love to have her. Good God, yes. Don't be don't be weird, John. We're trying to get her on the podcast. Was was that creepy? Uh, yeah, probably a little. <laughs> was that was that like crawling across the toilet seat creepy? I don't know. <laughs> oh well, maybe I'll get my good friend Kristen Klebe to to ask her. No, all right. There you go. <laughs> well, we're coming back from a little bit of a, a break, and that sounds like a good time to open my next beer. As I drank last time, which is kind of good to keep the continuity within the same film, I am drinking a Sculpin IPA. Delicious. Um, Rich, are you only drinking cough syrup, or what's your deal? My standby, the Swami's IPA from Pizza Port. So we are keeping the the same drinks going. Uh, How about you, Vic? I started off with a uh, Dragon's Milk Stout, which is delicious, but it's like 11% alcohol. And I started my new job, and I have learned from years of podcasting with you gentlemen that if this goes on until midnight and I continue drinking 11% alcohol, I'm going to have a hard day tomorrow. I'm a little embarrassed to say that I switched to a Diet 7-Up, and I opened it off mic. So I just – guys, I'm just dropping the ball left and right, and I'm sorry. Dude, you don't need to open your 7-Up on mic, man. (laughs) That's a a good point. That would be a disgrace to the microphone. Why do you even own Diet 7-Up? Emily was sick. So you know what else is really sick is this crazy dream that Michael has of his mother. <laughs> that, that, ladies and gentlemen, is a professional segue. <laughs> do not try that at home. You're going to hurt yourself if you do. That's so, right. yeah, in this one, Ghost Mom basically tells Michael that she isn't real, which I find interesting. Young Michael is there alongside adult Michael, and we see... That she's in black, Ghost Mom, which is weird because she's like in mourning, but for who? Herself? For Judith? I don't know. He wants to show her this weird tableau, which I think is awesome because, again, we know in all of these movies he creates tableaus. Well, this is sort of an idealized version of that, perhaps, where it's this large skeleton with the iconic Michael Myers mask on it, but it's this freakishly large skeleton and there's always snow associated with these hallucinations which uh that i have no theories on but we do get this bizarre halloween court of of sorts with dignitaries of halloween at a table like 
a sort of Middle Ages type thing where they're twisted pumpkin creatures, but they're regal and royal and they're having some kind of a feast. Lori is on the table laid out like meat to be devoured. And Michael tells his mother, I found Boo. You get the strong sense that he still wants them to be a family. Yeah, it's pretty fucked up. That it is. <laughs> Sorry. No. Um, Advanced level and, analysis right there, Vic. Now, <laughs> this is one of those scenes where I really like what Zombie brings to the table. Reminds me a bit of The Cell, the old uh, mm. uh, Vincent mm. D'Onofrio uh, serial killer movie, except that that movie sucked. We're going to try and visualize what was inside Michael's Michael Myers's head there's a there's a real chance for this to go completely off the rails and instead i actually really felt like it worked although am i correct that this scene ends with Lori waking up sort of screaming yes it does from the nightmare so is this michael's vision is it Lori's dream or are they sharing them at the same time well, I think they are sharing them. I, I think it, that's the that's the strong takeaway for me is that this is one of those sequences of, of several in the movie that are beginning to say they will be seeing the same things, that there yeah. is a, a sharedness happening here. And I think it's a really cool thing that I, I don't recall seeing very often where, you know, the audience is faked out by whose dream it is. I, I mean, I'm sure it's not unprecedented. But I really like the sort of surprise that it's Laurie's dream and not his. Or at least it's sort of the segue because we begin – I think actually, yeah, it makes the point because we begin with him and it's segueing from where he's in a restful state to this hallucination. So, yeah, I think it draws a clear line that that they're both sharing it. It's just interesting that based on we were talking about the things that Michael likes to do – and the, again, the, the tableaus that he's created in every incarnation, the idea that there would be a, even an idealized version of that is, is kind of cool. And this is what it would look like, as you said. Like, you know, what, what, is, what does his fantasy life look like? I think this is a pretty great representation of what that might be. It's a little weirdly cute. Like it kind of yeah. – I actually really like the – I really like the creatures that are in there, but it's uh, it borders on like Tim Burton territory a little bit. That's a good point. Um, and it's I know that that Michael has a fascination with masks, but he's never really demonstrated any sort of specific affinity for Halloween itself that I can think of, other than showing up to murder people on it. Which that I guess counts. Is something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a fan. Well, I think we talked about last time, you know, the idea or even the podcast before that, that he didn't get to have the Halloween that he wanted to have. And it was important to him that he get to go out trick or treating. Yeah. And I guess I guess maybe part of it is that the idea is that the, the representation of these creatures is supposed to be something that like a child would conjure up. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I'm, I'd be willing to buy that. Anyways, they, they look cool. So, but you're right. It is kind of cutesy. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um, but again, yeah. like that does kind of maybe tie into the juvenile aspects of, of his consciousness. And then it ends with, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but it, it ends with like Lori trapped in a box and like screaming and, and beating her hands on it or something to that effect. I think that's the that next right? one. Um, and by yeah. the way, I, I thought, 
And I noticed in this scene now, like watching this for whatever, the third or fourth time, that they make up Lori and the mom like in very similar ways and that like they both have this like heavy black mascara or something and like they start to blend even though like one is blonde and the other is brunette that like i and the cuts are very almost subliminal like the first one or two times i saw this i thought that was the mom trying to get out of the um the coffin but of course it's Lori. but i I think some blurring of of their look or their identity is is intentional so yeah Lori wakes up from this and now it's October 30th, we see Michael again on foot, and now he's lumbering past the Haddonfield sign and entering the city limits. He's got a bedroll, which I think is an interesting aspect of authenticity that, you know, like the movie does account for, well, where does he sleep and stuff like that and these little details. From a cinematography standpoint, I think this movie is, you know, right up there uh, with the very best uh, of this series, certainly it looks fantastic, very dynamic. And then we cut to Loomis uh, once again doing his shtick, hitting on a TV reporter, and we learn that he's going to be here in Haddonfield for the Halloween as a stunt to sell books, presumably. And he's got some more brutal dialogue that is making its point with the most bluntness possible with the unlucky publicist that it has to deal with him. He says things along the lines of bad taste is the petrol that drives the American dream. And my personal favorite, when I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you. That's such a Rob Zombie line. Yeah, it really is. But I actually I wrote down the bad taste is the petrol that drives the American dream. I I think that's a I think that's a great line, and I think he he delivers it wonderfully. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, there's a difference between those two lines. It's just, yes. it's very florid, I guess is the word. But the but the point is, in case you missed it, Doctor Loomis is a dick and a sellout. Yes, and a sellout and yeah. a dick. Mm-hmm. Oh, all right. Another 7-Up or uh, LaCroix or (laughs) something. Okay. (laughs) At least I'm drinking alcohol. Now, after this, we get to the next dream sequence, which I think Rich was just alluding to. And this one's, I guess it's an epileptic fit slash hallucination, which, again, is interesting because she's not asleep for this one. But Laurie uh, becomes Michael Myers. She's wearing the same wardrobe as he was in that early sequence in the last movie, except instead of Ronnie, she tapes up Annie and slits her throat. And we're really exploring this idea that Laurie on some level wants to kill Annie. And it kind of, there's shades of Annie in this movie that mirror Danielle Harris again when she was playing Jamie Lloyd and she tries to kill her foster mother at the end of four. Because now we're really exploring the same thing that we did in, in those movies where possibly Michael's relative is going to follow in his footsteps. The question, of course, is why exactly? Is it just the murderous impulse and influence that she's getting from her psycho brother or is it something coming from whatever is really driving him if you want to get bigger and you know come up with some conspiracy 
theories. Uh, I know the Rob Zombie commentary floats the idea that Annie is just the living memory of everything that Laurie lost, and thus she kind of hates this living memory reminding her all the time. I think it's a it's a, a druidic cult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, that that to me makes the most sense if I was gonna draw a straight line there. Zombie's visuals and his imagination and the things that he sort of puts together. Her in the outfit I actually found really unsettling. And her in the box and everything. I mean I, I find all the dream sequence stuff kind of effective and, and interesting. Well, yeah. you weren't kidding with the redundancy, though, because ju- just hearing, like, John lay out the scenes we just watched, we basically had, like, it's like Loomis is a jerk, Michael wanders from one place to the next, dream sequence. Then Loomis is a jerk, <laughs> Michael wanders around from one place to the next, dream sequence. Yeah. Right. That point about setting her up as... Maybe she's going to take on the mantle of the murderous villain in this series. Like, not only is that something we get from Jamie Lloyd, it's something we get from from Tommy in Friday the 13th Part 5. That this idea is something that I feel like franchises have reached for a couple of times with the idea that they may find some longevity in it. I think Zombie at least is just dealing with it more in terms of this is a a fun idea for him to play with. It's not sort of as calculated as it was in some of the other instances. And also that they the other ones always chicken out on it. They completely ignore the fact that Tommy was going to murder somebody at the end of uh, Friday the 13th 5. And we basically ignore the fact that Jamie stabbed her mother. Uh, Oh, yeah. They do backflips to skirt around that, right? In the next movie. Yeah. You could say the same thing happens here in that, like, there was definitely a plan to make another one after this, and there were a couple of attempts. And, you know, up until the David David Gordon Green uh, film in 2018, if there was going to be another Halloween movie, presumably it would have gone down this road, right, to some extent. Like, if it, if it was going to continue from this story, and I have to say... I'm I'm kind of sad that we didn't get that. I never would have said that at the time, but now if we could have honestly gotten a movie where it's Laurie Strode the the psycho, I think that that would have at least paid off something that has been set up in this franchise several uh, you know at least twice and 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 we never got. So it would have been fun to go down that road and uh, sadly or not, like who knows whether it would have worked, but um we're never going to get that. I think you you hint at it a little bit between H2O and Resurrection, where we get Lori in the insane asylum, mm-hmm. being mute, being mute like her like her brother was. Uh, obviously, they they weren't going that direction with it exactly. But John, I agree that was that was one thought that I did have at the end of this. That regardless of how my feelings are kind of changing about it, yeah, that's a movie I would actually be curious to see because I think Zombie really has the courage of his convictions. I think he really is setting that up because that's a story that he wants to tell. And I have to say, it could have been awesome. Like, it it might not have been, but I think it could have been. And so we'll never know. But I'm certainly watching this movie and just, I think, more than you now, digging what he's he's doing. I'm, I'm feeling that loss right now. Because I think this really wasn't two movies. I think it should have been three. 
Guys, it really does my heart good to hear the two of you agreeing on something. Yeah. And, and that's why I think we should probably wrap it up right here. Yeah. <laughs> Before things get inevitably ugly, as they yeah. always do. Well, speaking of ugly, this Frankenstein impersonator that uh, that <laughs> Laurie encounters on her way to her therapist. This is a fascinating sequence, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> because... Well, no, I mean, I'm not even, um, I'm being deadly serious because you never see like delusion play out this way where you, you, you get her interpretation of what happened Uh and it's so obvious that it's not what really happened that you're like, Uh oh wow. Yeah. She's, she's really like lost touch with reality. And I think it, it just illustrates what that would be like because you can feel her, her panic and her, you know, confusion over something that you or I hopefully um, would not be so thrown by, but because, you know, her mental state is such, it, it becomes this, you know, chaotic swirl of, of disturbing and impenetrable baffling events. Are you referring to the the fact that she tells her therapist that like you're saying inappropriate things to children? Yeah, which which we didn't hear. That's exactly. interesting. I, I that that interpretation makes a lot of sense. I didn't interpret it that way. I felt like we had just cut around whatever the things he was saying was, but uh, the way you're seeing it makes a lot more sense. I mean, he, he does own a strip club, so I mean, you're you're not way. Yes, off. it turns. It's, yes, it turns out that he is a, like a wildly inappropriate character. So. <laughs> But I mean, there's a couple things that give me that that read. Like, there's there's a lot of evidence that that being a very strange coincidence, um, notwithstanding that he owns a strip club, it's clear that she's losing it and she's having a mental breakdown here. So she tells the uh, therapist that she's not strong enough to deal with this and she's tired of pretending that she is. And I, I thought that was a good line. I don't love the way this scene plays. It's another one actually that's that's cut very differently in the theatrical cut. I don't remember exactly how, how it plays, but I read a bit about it. I know I think she just stops and like, talks to the pig and then she talks to her therapist. Oh, I think we get the normal version in that one. Yeah. Like she's not delusional in that. Exactly. And the, but, but even in, even in this scene, the therapist scenes are still really good. And I think Scott, Scott Taylor Compton is, is really good in them. Oh yeah. yeah. It's a, yeah, it it does sort of enter that territory. Like this is certainly a a go-to Rob Zombie directorial approach where everyone just starts screaming at the top of their lungs. Um, I felt like her her performance, which I do think is good here, uh, reminded me of the Ronnie scene from the first movie. Uh, Like just like this absolutely like belligerent screaming match going back and forth. The idea perhaps that Rob Zombie doesn't know how to even conceive, let alone write a character that was the Lori in the first movie where, you know, she's had an idyllic childhood and good parents and she doesn't remember anything bad or traumatic. And, you know, she's, she, her friends call her mother Teresa and an angel and all of that. Like that character is always going to ring false. And once he can kind of, you know, fuck her up to the extent that her, her psychology and her emotional state are, are going to be as damaged as, as all the flawed, fucked up, you know, depraved people that he's comfortable writing. Like now he can fucking write her dialogue and now he can <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bring her to life. 
this this scene, like Vic in the last one, said that he liked that he thought the therapist scenes were felt very uh, true to life. Uh, Vic, do you still feel that way here, or it feels better than these scenes are usually portrayed? And the and the therapist just feels again I've raised by psychologist feels more true to what uh, the way a therapist actually behaves. Um, but again, it's, it's, she's dialed up to 10 and, and I'm not sure how often that, like, I, I'm not sure that's actually realistic, but it is for the character and for what we're doing with it. It makes sense. I mean, you saw the fucking hallucinations that she's having, right? I mean, yeah. I'd be pretty, pretty flipped out myself. Yeah. Uh, she needs, she needs, she needs more drugs. That's the, that's the gist of it. She needs yeah. More and drugs. I think I alluded to this last time too, that like the idea of just feeling like all what would solve your problems if they just give you the drugs that you need and you can't get them to do that. Like I, I, I understand her frustration. That's for sure. You know, it's just a very primal situation where, you know, you want your medicine and they're not giving it to you. You know, whatever. Yeah. Maybe it's just a pure addiction because she's clearly addicted to her drugs, her medication. Right. So, I mean, just from an addict's perspective, it's uh, a very intense situation. So back to Loomis. And, yes, we're, we are absolutely, as you guys both have pointed out, um, we're repeating a cycle of scenes here. The only new thing that Loomis seems to have put in his second book is outing Laurie. Um, and I think it's kind of interesting that maybe him coming to terms with that and accepting how shitty a move that is, is kind of what made him in his own way, go around a bend or a point of no return and embrace being a prick. Because once he decided to do that, well, he might as well enjoy it because he sold his soul and now he's living it up. He's playing that role to, to the hilt. Can you remind me what Loomis scene this is? I didn't even write it down. Oh, it's that memorable. This is where he yeah, he's he's talking to the TV news reporter, and Brackett is watching it uh, 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 on TV, and it's kind of the the prelude to the book coming out, and where Brackett finds out what Loomis is is teasing here, which is of course that what Brackett told Loomis about Lori in confidence, you know, just, you know, trusting him, I guess, to be a decent guy, he just put in the book. So it's actually Brackett's fault in a, in a way that uh, Loomis outs the fact that Lori is Michael's sister. I, I believe I could be wrong, but I think this is also a, a weird director's cut thing that in the theatrical version, Lori is also watching the broadcast. I don't recall, but yeah, I think there there are some differences in how this information is disseminated. Yeah, well, uh, she winds up because she winds up buying the book. That's how she. That's how she actually gets the information. Yeah, I do want to take. I can't remember if we did this in talking in, in talking part one, but what a pleasantly warm performance from Brad Dourif as Brackett. Oh yeah, I yeah, think, I thought he was great. Well, it just like you're used to seeing him as the weird toady sycophant in the Lord of the Rings or the Two Towers and, you know, the voice of Chucky. And like he's he's so easily slips into like creepy weirdo phase. Even the doctor in Deadwood. Is there? I I miss Deadwood, so I haven't seen that. But um, but yeah, he normally he doesn't have the steely edge that he has in, in this movie. 
Yeah. And well, and again, and just he's he's I, I, I really appreciated once he he calls Annie to try and talk to Lori before she finds out when he realizes what's in the book. And it's just a, it, you, his concern feels so genuine and you really understand not just how much he cares for his daughter, but how much he cares for Lori. And that that all ties into the fact that he knows that he's the one who got her adopted and, and has been keeping the secret and stuff. It's I, I'm just saying it's 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 nice to see him play this and not, you know, Exorcist three. Yeah, I mean, if you put. Brad Dorif in a in a Rob Zombie movie, like your first thought would be he's not going to be one of the shining lights of decency in that yeah. universe. <laughs> but he is like this character is one of the few semi heroic, like reliable, sane, uh, pragmatic, compassionate people that we have. Like those those characters are in short supply in the Rob Zombie verse. And it, yeah, it's kind of casting against type, but he's he's fan fucking tastic. So yeah, it's it's definitely I love the guy, and it's really great to see him being this character in this movie. One hundred percent agree. So I guess we should get to the strip club, huh? Yeah, this is an incredibly brutal sequence, and I think it's definitely elevated by this goofy character, this bouncer who I think, you know, he definitely feels at home in a Rob Zombie movie, but he's... This know. guy, by by the way, this guy played the uh, the caveman on the Geico commercials. Which is... Get out! Yeah. <laughs> That's mind-blowing. Like, it's just that I don't... I, I knew that, and I look at him, and I'm just kind of... I'm, I'm, I'm weirdly shocked by that for some reason. But... You know what? Good for that guy. I bet he made a lot of money off those guy. Oh, good Lord. And they were kind of funny. Yeah. No, he's great. He's great. <laughs> I mean, he's he's great in 31. Is that? Uh, yeah, the other Rob Zombie movie. He's he's sort of an unsung talent that I just enjoy what he does. He really, he pops, you know? And well, and it's, I mean, look, part of what makes the zombie movies interesting, and we've talked about this before, there's a little dynamic going on here. This guy isn't just I mean, he's cannon fodder, but I just mean that that he takes a little time to establish the characters, establish mm-hmm. the relationships. There's a little bit of conflict. You can see this guy trying to suck up to his boss, clearly being kind of an idiot yep. in how he's doing it. It, it. it makes it it makes it a scene in what is otherwise a totally extraneous. Plot, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't advance the narrative. It's a totally extraneous scene, but at least it has some interesting qualities and characters to it. I totally agree. I mean, I think that it the dialogue is dumb, but it's not cranked up to eleven on the obsceno meter. It's a little restrained, a little more naturalistic. Yeah, there's kind of a kind of, kind of a funny dynamic that he should be the young quote unquote cool guy bouncer in the situation, but he's sort of the obsequious toady guy because the other dude is the boss and the other guy's getting the attention of a lady and like it's just it's a it's a weird little little scene that feels sort of oh I don't know exactly what the dynamics here and I haven't seen it a thousand times and and that makes it that makes it interesting. 
I appreciate yeah. that you're, you're, you're describing this scene as restrained. This is also the, <laughs> the same scene that will end in a fully nude woman being, having her face beaten against a mirror, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's another note is that, like, yet again, we have a, a, a naked woman being brutalized in a, in a Rob Zombie movie. Like, it, just between these two Halloween movies, this is, like, number five of six or something. Like, where the woman happens to be, quote-unquote, happens to be completely naked and yeah i mean we we talked about that last time that there's some uncomfortable dynamics going on here the most disturbing thing for me in this scene is when the owner refers to his penis as the jolly green giant <laughs> <laughs> i was that was one of those things where i was like again it's like only in a rob zombie movie like yes the owner of the strip club is going to have sex with one of his strippers Fine, I'm sure that dynamic actually exists in places. Does he have to, like, pretend to be Frankenstein and, like... <laughs> it's comical. I mean, it's, well, it's just, over the top. Just to make sure all the listeners at home followed it, this is the same man who was playing Frankenstein and entertaining children in the park earlier when Lori had her freak out. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That is true, which is and, weird. And, and then he can be seen plugging his strip club on the local news. <laughs> right, yeah. right. <laughs> oh, and it looks like a very high quality gentleman's club, by the way. Very classy, <laughs> yeah. this operation. Well, it is. This is a uh, a throwback to the original, right? Isn't it the, mm -hmm. the rabbit in red? Isn't that the matchbook? Yep. Yeah. That the nurse had? This yeah, is definitely I, I part of the Halloween verse. Well, yeah. I, did, I did appreciate that the, well, it's the, it's uh, the club that his mom danced at. Yep. Oh, I, it's, I, it's, somehow it's, I did. Somehow I connected it to the film from 1978, but not the one that we watched uh, two months ago. Oh no, There's they have a, this very classy um, billboard uh, extolling that fact in front. Like it says, like home, home of whatever her name Deborah. is, Deborah Myers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> home of the home of the mother of Michael Myers. Yeah, yeah, and which a podcast I listened to pointed out that this bouncer, either one or two years later, does not see this man standing in front of him whose body was never found at the strip club where his mother worked doesn't cross his mind for a minute that he might be squaring off with, with Michael Myers. Instead, he just calls him a filthy, dirty hippie. Uh, you know, that's, and then, that's the criticism has some, holds some water. And again, this is, this is what I'm talking about. And then punches him in the face. <laughs> like well, he is about that her. guy. But still, like that guy's a filthy, dirty hippie. He's huge. Like I just, it's, I just feel like I'd be like, you know what? Did you can sleep by the dumpster? It's fine. This guy, we'll the caveman, Geico caveman, is like only a couple of inches shorter. Uh, for what it's worth, he, he is a tall guy, but it, it is but half the body weight. No, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, I think they uh, prefer Neanderthals, <laughs> not cavemen. Oh I, God! I now we're gonna get that lobby here, after us. Sorry, Rich. Yeah, Maybe on. you can examine this because I know that you have the, the playback going over there, John. But mm -hmm. I had some notes here about uh, that. I felt like there were some inconsistencies with the whole like killing with the mask on versus the mask off here. Mm -hmm. I know we get a brief, a brief moment where where ghost mom and ghost child Michael Myers are standing next to Michael as he kills Geico Caveman. <laughs> you guys are following all this, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You hear it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they're there. Yeah, they're standing. They're there. standing there, but then, but he's not wearing a mask, right? As he nope. 
kills Geico Caveman, which stirs, seems like it's either defying the rules or he's evolving or changing in some way where the, the mask is no longer necessary for him to, to I, switch into Michael Myers mode. We definitely don't get the feeling that if he doesn't have the mask on, he's a puppy dog. That would be going farther. I mean, I think that he tends to be harder to provoke when he's not wearing the mask. But, I mean, that guy provokes the fuck out of him. So, like, I think by any reading of this, like, that guy, a confrontation was inevitable there. But I do think that the the movie definitely says there are, are levels. And when he puts the mask on, he becomes more aggressively a figure of brutality. And if he doesn't have the mask on, he can sort of drift through our world and, you know, potentially not cause problems. But once the mask is on, yeah, that's when he's in just like great white shark mode. I'm sorry that the notion of this guy provoking Michael, cause I know that he punches him. It did remind me of Buster Rhymes shouting at Michael Myers in <laughs> resurrection and poking him in the forehead. <laughs> Yeah, and I mean that Michael was exceptionally patient. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so he has the mask on when he comes into the strip club. So that's why he like he doesn't require any you don't have to fuck with him. He he is there to kill the owner, you know, Lou Martini or Big Lou or whatever you want to call him and the unfortunately naked stripper. And we get the voyeuristic Michael too a little bit which I, I sort of appreciated. It. It's the image of him in the doorway, like watching them about to have sex was, mm-hmm. I don't know, fit in with a lot of the psychology, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about leading up to this, like the connection between him and the sexuality and his sort of voyeuristic, like I'm just going to stand outside and watch this happen uh, until the guy sees him. And maybe until the guy says Jolly Green Giant, because that's when I would have just wanted to break the guys off. <laughs> Well, he creates a, a, a fun house here, like a haunted house. Um, again, back to the tableaus. But to me, like the way he's got this sort of lit up strand of Halloween lights hanging the, the, the bouncer with his face caved in. He's created, you know, not just a tableau. Rob Zombie loves his fun houses, but I think Michael does too, to a degree. And I think those two things work in concert here relatively well. Also, I gotta say, excellent makeup effects. I mean, yeah. throughout throughout the film, yeah. but, but the the guy with his face caved in and the oh, yeah. the poor woman getting her face smashed into the mirror over and over again, like very visceral. The compound fracture on the arm oh. was oh yeah brutal. That's rough. Yeah, I mean, again, just as a horror movie, we can get pretentious and we can judge dialogue and themes and arcs and all that, but you're like, goddamn right. We can't, <laughs> if you want, if you want pretentious, you come to the right place. But I mean, if you're just saying like, I want to watch a really disturbing, no holds barred, fucked up. Um, this movie will linger with you and it, it, it does not have any tongue in cheek at all. Like this, this movie delivers the goods and in a way that 90% of these Halloween sequels and remakes do not. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. All right. And if you're, if you're a Geico caveman completist, <laughs> <laughs> this scene is really the feather in the cap of his career. 
he deserves a shout out at some point. So maybe I'll, I'll mention his name later because I have to click on some buttons. But oh, by the way, he plays a dual role. Like he's the guy at the party, the comedian, the drunk comedian. Is he? Yes. Uncle Seymour Coffins and the character of Howard the Bouncer. Jeff Daniel Phillips is the guy's name. Which is weird because he has a very distinctive face. And I, I mean, I pretty much just noticed that. And, and you don't get that normally with a character playing a dual role. It's not exactly, you know, in Suspiria where we, we have like someone playing stealthily three or four roles. Okay, so moving on to the next sequence. Now it's Halloween. It's time for the, I believe it's the book signing. Which is interesting because the book signing has a line around the block. All the sort of doubt that Loomis has about the criticism hindering his book sales, well, that's certainly an endorsement of, uh, you know, even the notorious will sell. And there's no such thing as bad publicity. But Linda's dad shows up and says, you butchered my baby which is a line that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm struggling to get it. The point of this is what a raving asshole Loomis has become. And so the first guy we get is this kind of weirdo that wants the book signed, and I forget what name he wants him to make it out to, Mm -hmm. and then he changes his mind to, you know, Dr. Death or whatever his this guy's fucking Twitter handle is or whatever. But I think so part of the point is that Loomis is the, – the, the people who are buying these books are weird, bloodlusty people, which I don't necessarily agree with as a, as a fan of, say, Last Podcast on the Left or you know True Crime or whatever. doesn't yeah. make you a super weird person. But again, what we're trying to point out is this is the – these are the people whose money Loomis is trying to take. And then we get the – as if that's not enough, then we get the dad – and again, John, I think you're right. I mean, I, I would say if I was gonna if I was gonna paint a psychological explanation onto this, if this guy wanted someone to blame, Loomis would be available. And he again, the whole thing is he's out there profiting off of the, his daughter's murder. So I, you can kind of you can kind of make it work. But again, it's more to get to this guy pulling out a gun. And Loomis still in the car being like, well, I guess this is part of the job. Yeah, he keeps resisting, like in that yeah. sort of screenwriting term, resist the call. Like in a, this is an extremely exaggerated uh, example, and he's not the protagonist. But, you know, Loomis' character arc is being confronted, whacked in the face with his wrongdoing over and over and over and over. And eventually he says, okay, yeah, you know, I have to redeem myself somehow. But I mean, I think that Rob Zombie hates almost everyone. So it's really easy in this film or any of his movies really to say that like he's, he's shining a light on the wrongdoing and the shortcomings of all of these different groups of people. You could even say, as I brought up earlier, that, you know, a lack of compassion for drifters and the homeless is one of them. And certainly profiteering, you know, the idea of salacious coverage and obsessing over true crime is one of his targets here. There's, there's no doubt about it. I think that's, I certainly think that's true. But again, what I, what, what actually bothers me about 
the character arc is that it's not the the father with the picture of his dead daughter who's so destroyed by the events you know of the first film that he's brought a gun and wants to kill him that is not what pushes him over the edge it's chris hardwick and weird al on television well you like know, it's this it's just such a strange choice but dude you're you're kind of you're ignoring the idea that sometimes it's not the last straw. Like if that if it was just that, you wouldn't have any of these scenes. You'd just have him go on the talk show and then, you know, he would make a 90 degree turn. Like I, I do think that that would be more implausible or harder to sell. I, I, I don't think that that is the pivotal thing. I just think that's the, the final thing. I think the movie is definitely trying to say that Loomis has been challenged and questioned so long that eventually he changes. It's not that he was, you know, completely not questioning this until then. And then he's like, well, fuck, if Weird Al thinks I'm a douche, then now I got to change. Yeah, Vic, you try getting snapped by Weird Al and just living your life. I'm just saying this is this is a scene that is dramatic and and powerful and kind of pops and this should have been the straw that broke the camel's back. So yeah, you're you saying know, you don't this, need well, the maybe, Chris Hardwick maybe, scene. Well, you don't need you don't need like 3 of these scenes. Yeah. You're right. Like I certainly would have cut the the Chris Hardwick scene. Like if you had just gone from here to Loomis in his hotel room, the movie would have would have felt tighter. But and- then we wouldn't have had Weird Al saying, I'm a little confused. Are we talking about the Austin Powers, Mike Myers? <laughs> 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 Which I've been waiting for since the beginning of this series. <laughs> like, that's the kind of moment where I thought we'd get that from, like, the Danny McBride take on Halloween. <laughs> but yeah. there isn't much of that in the 2018 movie. But we get it here. And I'm glad we finally did that in one of these flicks. That's a good point, John. You're right. <laughs> in Baby Driver... Does I don't know, I don't know if anyone remembers it, but there's the mm-hmm. the sequence where they're about to rob the bank, and they pull out the masks and they're they're Austin Powers masks. <laughs> yes, and he says, yes. "I told you to get Michael Myers masks." He's yeah. like, "This is Michael Myers." <laughs> oh my god, I I can't believe I forgot that because I just saw that movie in February. But yeah, that's that's amazing. <laughs> I I will say I would have liked to have been on set for a day with Weird Al. Malcolm McDowell, Chris Hardwick, and Rob <laughs> Zombie. Like, I feel like the craft services table would be fun. Wow. I, I will say, I, I know that we have just jumped ahead to the Weird Al scene, but this the weird sense of awkward tension feels very real yeah. in that scene. It does. And one of my favorite things in this entire movie, and I don't blame you guys if you didn't notice this, but to me this is so Hollywood. This is so L.A., Leaving the studio in mid-rant at his publicist, Loomis suddenly turns cheery uh, and tells uh-huh. the people at the front night, Good night! Thank you! <laughs> yeah. It just kills me. <laughs> I got a laugh out of that. Like, every time I watch it, it's, you know, he's able to shift those gears and be yeah. polite and, and put on his social face. I just, that, that little random detail, that's the kind of thing I really appreciate. So then, um, right after that, the little kid runs smack into Michael Myers. Again, the beat we've seen a million times. But I think it's interesting that he's not wearing a mask here. And I think that that kind of dovetails with the whole 
idea that that Myers does not he's not as easily activated or triggered when he's in whatever humanity mode he has left. That was a wolf pup that I just opened. Boy, I was oh. going to say, Rich, you're really putting down the little Croy tonight. <sighs> well, no, this is me downshifting because this is a session IPA. By the way, I think I'm getting sick because my voice is going in the course of this podcast, but oh well. It's it's sexy, John. It's all right. Thanks, man. Yeah. yeah. It's that, you know, that little bit of whiskey, whiskey voice going. Let's move to when Lori gets the news, like her reaction to this. She, she's reading the book. She's tearing it apart. She's flipping out. I, I, I want to throw at you that a podcast I listened to suggested that it would be more psychologically resonant if she had known all along that she was Michael's sibling and that was part of her angst. Like that would kind of help justify a lot of her – and you could you could push the alienation a lot farther in the community, you know, if everyone knew she was the psycho's sister. Would that be better, worse, doesn't move the needle for you guys? What do I you mean, think? I, I think that's a very different story. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the moment that she's experiencing here is like sort of a, a worst nightmare scenario where it's like the thing that is – unquestionably the worst thing that's happened to her in her, her entire life actually just got worse. I like that. And, and I also, I liked it. I thought the way that it was shot and handled actually to me, for some reason, this red is one of the more real and empathetic scenes of the movie. I'm not sure why exactly. I, I just felt like it, it sort of had a, had a detached quality and the the shot of her in that that shitty dirty car in like an empty parking lot in the Midwest somewhere yeah. felt like something lifted out of like a gritty indie drama somewhere. Totally. If you didn't have this revelation, you would still need something that pushes her further into that downward spiral. Uh, and so as much as I agree, it, it would add some, some more layers of complexity or, or, or depth to some of the earlier stuff. You need a hammer drop here. Like this is we're, – we we're, believe this is essentially the second plot point. Like this is when we – this is what really drives us towards the, towards the climax is her getting self-destructive in, in the wake of this news. So I, 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 think, I think you need it. I can see that. I can see that point. But if it wasn't that, you would need something else in the scene. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that one of the things that is most compelling about this movie, or both, you know, two movies, potentially three movies, if it had gone that way, is that I have such compassion for the idea of a character living a few years, however many, 12, 13, whatever it is where you're you have a normal life like you're a healthy person with friends and good parents and it's all kind of a lie or at least a, a dream that you're having that your destiny was something else and inevitably you're going to learn the truth of that the terrible truth and that's heartbreaking. It kind of reminds me of that line in The Fly where Jeff Goldblum says something like, 
I was an insect who dreamt he was a man, and it was beautiful. But the insect is awake now. And this movie is kind of about the, about the awakening of the insect. And those years that she was Laurie Strode were just an interlude, a brief escape from who she was always going to be, a Myers. And that the tragicness of that, it, it, it kind of plays on something that I thought they were starting to do. Like one of the things in Curse of Michael Myers that intrigued me was at the end of it, Loomis learns that his dark destiny is to become a member of this cult all along. And there was nothing he could ever do about it. And, you know, that's a terrible movie in many ways. But like I was sort of – that's the last we see of Loomis. And I, I think there's something really horrible and fucked up about learning that you're that powerless and a lot of great certainly russian literature suggests that you know we can be caught in a web of fate that there's no escape and i think it follows plays with this very literally in tying the connection to russian literature i just it's it's something that i'm affected by and i i like that this movie plays that card like i said folks if you want pretentious you came to the right podcast <laughs> Oh my God, we, have, we haven't dropped any Louis Buñuel references yet, but we'll get there. Yeah, no Joseph Conrad yet, but yeah, we'll... <laughs> the heart of darkness. Well, it is. I mean, the, the the other thing that's interesting, and I think that's that's crystallized for me as we've talked about the movie, is that you do also have to view this revelation through the lens of her visions and dreams and nightmares. She's got to be drawing that connection to what that means. You know what I mean? That she's been dreaming about Michael and, and uh, you know, her mother and, and all this kind of stuff. At least I wonder if she's making that connection. I feel like that makes – that that adds a layer to this. Well, she has, but she's a completely compromised, sense, uh, unreliable narrator. Yeah, but, but in some sense, she's always <laughs> known she was a Myers. Well, yes. sure. If you think about the dream she's been having just within the, the you know, the confines of this movie alone – it's kind of like this moment is a confirmation of what has been like on the tip of her tongue all this time. Yeah, yeah. Like she's always known on some level. She sensed it. And, you know, remember she was – we saw her as the little baby living in the eye of the this hurricane that was her life. And the talk about the boogeyman with Tommy and everything, like I think she's kind of known – she's connected to the boogeyman. I think that's part of why this movie is depicting those things is that it's, it's suggesting from the beginning that she's a part of this family and there's no escaping that. And we're all a part of our families and there's no escaping that. Um, I was just going to say that the, also the, the betrayal, if that's the right word of, of Loomis in this scene feels very, again, going back to the way that Annie and Lori's relationship feels very logical to how like this would play out in real life. I feel like this kind of betrayal and this moment where she gets outed in uh, this like tawdry, you know, true crime book feels very realistic in terms of like, how would this scenario play out in real life? If this, if this, this string of murders really happened, to these people, like, how would you see this unfold in the public eye? And like, how would they get the information? Like I buy all the, the logic of all of it. Um, and so the way that she was hurt by Loomis in this scene, like seems like something that 
I would imagine that survivors of other true crime stories that we're familiar with have felt put through this before. Like it feels very authentic. Can you imagine combining with that, that you're not even the person that you thought you were? As she keeps saying, I'm not me. I'm not me to her new work friend. Right. You know, just in that, like, not only are you associated with all of this, like the psycho killer is your blood relative. Like you're inextricably linked on a much deeper level than just being a victim. There's no authenticity there because that doesn't happen in real life. <laughs> but I mean, what a what a mind fuck that would be. <laughs> I don't even know how fair it is to say that doesn't happen in real life. I think that I think that probably you know I've worked on true crime shows before, and there are just some horrific stories mm-hmm. about children discovering that like their father is actually the person that murdered their mother who they thought died of natural causes. This actually is something that happens to people. And so it's nice that it's sort of like, it's, it's weirdly like the most humane moment in zombies treatment of this story. A vast majority of murders take place amongst people who are very close to one another. So, I mean, yeah, you would think that that would be, something that 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 comes up it's just taken to you know kind of an extreme here but yeah that's that's a good point so we're or we're just about to when they go to this party and i like that even though she's so damaged as she is when she decides she's breaking bad like that means she's gonna go party (laughs) and that's such a pretty that's like that's that's a pretty good girl interpretation of bad like ooh, she's gonna party oh she's 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 going bad. And I think that, that that kind of connects back to who she who she was before all of this. There's still a, a kernel of innocence in her. What's she gonna do? She's just gonna go get drunk and, you know, dance. <laughs> I thought her interaction with her friends, with her, her new alt friends mm-hmm. in this in this scene was actually kind of fun. Like I I, for some reason, I like the bit of dialogue where she stumbles into their their home and starts saying, like, I'm not me. I'm not me. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not me. And her friend just looks at her and goes, not really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the party. I love the way the party is shot. I mean, I love this. This is so much better than, what was it, five that had the big Halloween party in it. I think they had a wolfman in that too, but this is kind of a bananas sequence. And I have to say that this wolfman kid (laughs) hooks up with, he kills me, man. He kills me. He's pretty great. (laughs) Like I was just curious, what was it about their interaction that met her criteria for picking a guy? (laughs) Like what, what did he do? Right. Nothing about him screams, oh, yeah, take this guy for a roll in the hay. You will not be sorry. <laughs> well, I do I do love her, like, stop talking. Talking's not working for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but even before that, like, he says, oh, the shagging wagon, a work of art. I like her. And then she goes, you get laid a lot? And he says, yeah, I get a good amount. Because <laughs> phrasing it that way is so delightfully nerdy. I mean, it just totally belies the point that he's trying to make. I mean, this is good stuff here. This is this is good dialogue. Say what you want about Rob Zombie as a screenwriter. This totally well, works. 
Except that, of course, he has to work in a reference to uh, Golden Showers. Like that's when you were like, you were like, it's this is so much better than the 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 party from Five. Like one hundred percent more Golden Shower jokes. Well, no, it's uh, not him. Sure. It's actually her who says that. No, and no, he, I know, no, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I'm just saying, like, I was still like, that's of course, like, just of course, that's the the girl, the girl in the Rob Zombie movies. Like, hey, I'm into water sports. Yeah. Like, yeah. I Jesus mean, Christ. I see your point, but at least like Wolfie says something like, oh, that's really gross. I got to go piss. You're crazy. Something yeah. like that, you know. There's, and- there's sort of a fun like <laughs> sexual archetype uh, role reversal going on in this scene too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, I like that a lot. That said, I, I John, it just I, – I don't even understand why we're friends. Like I found almost everything about this scene tedious and I, I just – I have no patience – for scenes where the camera is drunk, like you know what I mean. When 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 I remember, I think it's Killing Zoe, the Avery movie, oh, where wow. there's there's like there's like a twenty minute sequence of people just being, you know, fucked up on drugs and everything's out of focus and like wobbly and and you keep looking at the ceiling and like that's just I just felt kind of nauseous after a little bit of this and it just I it's supposed really to just, make you nauseous. I don't want to feel nauseous, and it goes on way too long. <laughs> I, I get it; she's drunk. Like, okay, somebody find her, find Maya, and and somebody get her out of here so the Rob camera can Zombie go back to the tripod. <laughs> Rob Zombie is the filmmaker who is deliberately abrasive, and he he wants to make you uncomfortable, and I am okay with that. And I think when he does it, I'm like, good job, you did it. I'm uncomfortable. You know? Like, yeah, come on. Look, this isn't they, irre- this isn't irreversible. Okay, this is a, <laughs> good point. This is a this is a drunk girl at a party. And and Vic, you're talking not specifically about the Wolfman scene, but the party, the party in general. Yeah, yeah. and well, because remember, then they, I mean, they sort of they they wind up cross cutting to her sort of blundering around and like, yeah, yeah, just I, generally. No, I, I agree. I, the wolf, I the Wolfman you... scene, the Wolfman scene is good. I, 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 the, yeah, I would have disowned you if you didn't like the Wolfman. I don't know how you're focusing on any specific one part of this. Like, I the, this thing was such a mishmash of like the whole scene is like a Rob Zombie fever dream. I mean, he's 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 so lovingly crafted this like this dream Halloween party with his giant skeleton out front and bizarro, you know, like gallows humor, Geico caveman comedian drinking out of a skull. There's strippers on stage. There's a rockabilly band playing songs about <laughs> Day of the Dead. I mean, like, it's just like it's just everything that made up any of his music videos from the '90s crammed into one scene, and gratuitously. It's not even the production design that I take issue with. It's the it's the way that that her party scenes are shot, and it just it just felt bloated it felt like it was too long i just watched her drinking and drinking and drinking i don't know it, Vic, it i think you were in a bad mood today that's what i say <laughs> maybe you maybe you put me in a bad mood john <laughs> by making you watch this movie again again yeah uh, hey hey get this buddy okay you don't own me so you can't <laughs> disown me got it <laughs> I told oh, you guys man. we should quit while we were ahead earlier. Yeah. <laughs> now suddenly a fa- a family rift has has occurred. Yeah. Uh, over the shagging wagon and its value in, in the history of cinema. <laughs> I love that this is kind of a reverse cautionary tale 
where like you there's a slight inference that if the wolfman had just like gotten down to business maybe neither of them would have been murdered but because he goes out to take a piss not only do neither of them receive gratification they both die what do you guys think about that if a girl asks for a golden shower give it to her <laughs> that, that seems to be that seems to be the lesson is there, am I correct? There seems like there's a there's a very direct corollary to a Friday the Thirteenth movie involving a van and yes, is it demon? Is it demon that has to take a shit? Is that what I'm thinking of? Oh well, I mean, I think I was thinking of two of them there because I think in part four there's the the shag and wagon with the stoners and everything. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. So there's the complete shag and wagon in that one. And then Demon is in the next one, in 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 the fifth one. So yeah. yeah, you're right. Either way, I mean, yeah, the the sort of the failures and the successes of people trying to get laid are always deeply interwoven into the plot of of a slasher film. Well, and and in Vans specifically, yeah, yeah, definitely Vans have a, a rich history <laughs> in these movies. <laughs> and I mean, yeah, this is kind of by now it's a complete cliche. I mean, even the phrase shag and wagon, but I still think this is, this is a pretty good one. And the fact that like Wolfie is here and he's so, like articulate yet inept at the art of seduction with this woman who's absolutely dated reference here, um, DTF. Uh, it's it's very it's comical. Like it it really is you know kind of fresh. It works, but they the the best thing about this is when Michael busts through the window and kills her. It's the little crunch of bones breaking, like the top of her spinal column or something over an otherwise silent frame. It's very, very disturbing. But just before that, the intercutting of him doing that with the other girls, the other two girls, like the three characters came to this party together, they're friends, and they're dancing frantically. And we create a a sense of chaos and confusion by intercutting between them and him killing her. Like, this is just a good fucking sequence, man. I'm sorry. That's what I think. I also want to just take a moment to think about, like, is there anything to be made out of, first of all, the fact that they decided to dress as characters from Rocky Horror Picture Show, which they did a great job with, by the way. Like, some of them are really nailing the the character there. Especially Harley. I mean, she really looks like Frankenfurter from some, some angles. Which, which again, actually t- takes that that weird sexual dynamic thing with her and the Wolfman even further is the fact that she's dressed as a as a male transvestite. Yes, yes, <laughs> as she says a couple of times. Yeah, I'm she a keeps chick reminding pretending us. to be a guy, pretending to be a girl. It's really fun how far afield we get from what you might call norms or something. I don't, I don't know the lore of Rocky Horror Picture Show that well. But, like, I feel like especially with Rob Zombie and his obsession with masks and Halloween and, and monsters, like, out of everything in the world that he could have chosen to dress these characters as for Halloween, that this is the direction he went. Or is it was it just another sort of, like, that's what struck him that day? Wow. That's a good question. I feel like Rocky Horror fits in with Rob Zombie's oeuvre. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I mean, it was probably something that was influential to him as yeah. a, as a kid. 
you know, it's musical, it's edgy. Uh, it probably was, you know, when he was seven or eight, it was probably the best thing ever to him. So we have, this is one of the, the big missteps of the whole movie for me. And it's going to sound minor and I don't think anyone ever talks about it, but you guys are definitely going to get it. The girls are dancing and then somehow she gets separated, does Lori, and she goes into one of her little hallucinations. And as she comes out of it, as she's losing her mind and she thinks that Michael has her and it's just like a stuffed bear... The editor and or Rob Zombie, in their infinite wisdom, cut immediately from Myra helping her away. She's screaming in a panic. And we cut directly to her drunk and enthusiastic wanting to go back into the party. That is Bush League, man. Mind-blowing to me. Mind-blowing. Did you guys notice that? What a rushed and awkward transition. (laughs) I did not specifically notice it at the time, but oh my god, I, I do recall it now that you're mentioning it. I did, all right, so I didn't notice that, but I did notice, and and I promise we won't jump ahead too much. But she does sober up like immediately when she sees Annie in the house. She can barely walk when they get to the house, and then all of a sudden she's like, "Quick, run downstairs and call nine one one! Like I have to take care of my friend and give her medical attention." And I was like, "You, you could." You, you can barely walk like 30 seconds ago. <laughs> the idea of a sobering moment, there's some there's some truth in that. And if something extreme yeah. enough happens, it will cut through the haze. I believe that. I mean, I've certainly had that in my own life. <laughs> um, you can become alert quickly if, if you need to. But, there's enough blood on your hands. Right. Like if that yeah. hooker really needs to be buried in the <laughs> desert of Nevada right now. You will, you will rise to that occasion. <laughs> Before we uh, depart the Halloween party, I uh, it really is pr- pretty impressive that so this this band that is playing is a fictional band apparently who was put together of a of various musicians, some of whom have had like have have had like at least some kind of career like in Nashville apparently. Hmm. And they have an entire album, which like you can listen to on Spotify where it has like 12 full songs that was created just for the purpose of this movie, which I feel like is a, an impressive level of commitment. You kind of expect that from Rob Zombie in a situation like this, that he would know people and they would be motivated to pull it together in that way. But yeah, it's it's pretty good. I I like their sound. It was fun. Yeah, he he went back to the well. Like, there's a sense that 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 and the um, Seymour Coffin or whatever his name is, the comedian. Like, he was he was almost a little too proud of it. Like, there were too many moments with them, and the the amount of nudity on stage was was mildly distracting, but still impressive contributions to the production value. That was that was actually just a party at Rob Zombie's house. <laughs> I, I get I the feeling felt. there's a, a lot of nudity in Rob Zombie's life, so that's <laughs> that's great, man. <laughs> it's probably yeah how he fell in love with Sherry in the first place. If I may be so bold, I wonder if that's if that's awkward on set where he's like, you know, wait, you know, Sherry Moon is like, you know, next to him, and he's like, I. I need more topless women on the stage. Can we can we get any more nude women? Is there 
I wonder if she rolls her eyes at that or she's like, yeah, yeah, that'll be great. I, Maybe feel, like, I feel like she is down with his vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you're right, Rich. So I've let the movie play. And so I'm to the point where poor Annie gets ambushed uh, in her bathroom. Uh-huh. And I think we should, you know, talk about this whole sequence because I think it's really interesting and I like the way that we intercut this where we know she's Annie is probably fucked and yet the car arrives and Lori and Myra arrive and go make tea <laughs> and we know we we learn quickly that Michael is still in the house let alone you know what what's going on with Annie upstairs there's a lot going on here. The first thing that struck me was we get a, a shot of Deborah and young Michael Myers watching Annie inside the house. And initially it's not tied to any kind of Michael point of view. So it's very surreal. It's like, whoa, you, they're sort of malevolent, independent entities present here. And then though you do see that Michael is here and he's in the bathroom when Annie gets there. So you can kind of explain it in the purely psychological, non-supernatural sense. But I think it it's definitely striking that we just get the, the film is telling us that they're watching Annie. That they're present in some way. But uh, yeah, I mean, again, I'm on, I'm on team supernatural here. And then, you know, for all of her sass, Annie doesn't do the best job of escaping and resisting here. She kind of goes into victim mode immediately. And I do love that it's not on screen at all here. I mean, we just mostly hear it crashing and screaming and there's, there is some of that fake slow-mo, but you know, we just kind of get the feeling of violent harm being done smacks and cries of pain. And I, I found it very effective. The cross cutting, I, I guess was effective, but I also just felt it, this all started to feel sort of redundant and i was like oh like this is this is him not having another just another blanket scene of michael torturing somebody to death that he was trying to find a way to break it up and make it feel a little different but the fact that he had to do that is because we've just been through this with the rednecks in the car and the rednecks in the strip club and then the people in the van and so it's I, I what's your solution to that? I don't know. Like I said, I'm just it. it just I mean, you're felt, saying, of it, course, he needed to change it up, so he did. Okay, yeah, he should absolutely because <laughs> it would it would be really redundant just to have him, uh, Michael, you know, kill her on screen. So uh, what's the problem? I guess is my question. <laughs> if I had my druthers, I would probably cut the uh, the rabbit in red scene in the same way. That I think oh. you could cut that, and I think you could cut. You know, at least one and maybe two of the Loomis's an asshole scenes. Well, you know. said it back there the the rabbit red scene does nothing to move the story forward at all. You just don't need it. Yeah. Well, I, you needed more nude women on a stage. I mean that that seems like the point. <laughs> you need the backstory of Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. I, I don't know. I guess my more optimistic take on this was that Annie's death being off camera was sort of like a, a merciful makeup of her like gratuitous 
naked house chase yeah. from the first movie. Like it, it was sort of a, a respectful reprieve. Well, one of my big so. problems with this overall, even as a, my guess, like a complete apologist for the movie, whether we see it differently, depicted differently or not, I can't believe that the story has a virtual replay of the almost identical scene from the previous movie, except this time Annie dies. Like, I just don't get that choice at all. Like, why would you have this play out the exact same way? It's almost a carbon copy of the last movie's scene, you know, right down to the way Lori comes and calls her baby and cradles her and tells her she loves her. And like, the only difference is that, I mean, she's naked both times and this time she dies. It's just, it's mind blowing. I was actually confused about that. So when he enters, she's... She's wearing she's wearing clothes, right? Yeah, yeah. She's wearing a, a robe, right? Yeah. And then, well, okay. So I guess it's just a robe that got lost somewhere along the way. But I was I was sort of put off by that that she's clothed when Michael enters, and then when she's when her body is found by by both Lori and her dad later, that she's just completely naked. I, I don't know. It made me it made me feel like something was shot, and I'd imagine this is probably the case that something was shot. And just not used. Yeah, I mean, I think they definitely dramatized this because we we have the audio and we see a lot of him, you know, trashing the room and everything. And as you said, he's an improvisational uh, filmmaker. So, yeah, they probably shot it and then somewhere along the line decided to depict it in this way. I mean, the main thing about it is when Brad Dora finds her and we get that crazy ballsy choice to intercut home video of Daniel Harris at the age that she played Jamie Lloyd. And uh-huh. I, I totally bought it as what her grieving father might be thinking, you know, as he's experiencing this swirl of memories in his head, like trying to reconcile the body before him with who she is to him. And yeah, it, and his pain really rung true for me. Yeah, I don't know. I had mixed feelings about it. I she I agree that on the surface it was effective. It also it kind of played as like a callback, a, a sort of a non sequitur callback to the end of the first film, where they were like intercutting the footage of of Michael and and Laurie uh, as children with 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 her have, you know, sitting on top of his body after shooting him. It, it just felt so stylistically like a departure from everything else we had seen. Like, I don't know. It kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, even though I, I, I agree that it was effective. It's not totally seamless or smooth. That's for sure. It's jarring. And yeah, yeah. I'm giving it credit for something like I just don't ever see, you know, and I think that it's ballsy and I get what it's doing. But this, this never saw the light of day in front of an audience. And I, I heard zombie saying that people were laughing when he was reacting that way in the theatrical cut in the theater. And he attributed it, which I believe is 90% true to just people have a hard time, but they're going out to have a fun Friday night, you know, teenagers, seeing that type of emotion, like I think part of your natural reaction is, is to laugh, but it's a tightrope. It's hard to, it's hard to nail 
the tone of something like that. It, it can feel over the top. It can feel goofy. It's histrionic on some level. And yeah. So, like, it's it's hard. It's hard. And I think that everyone involved did their job. There was a reality to it. So it worked for me. Soderbergh did that in the Limey where he had footage of, like, young Terrence Stamp mm. on, uh-huh. like, 8 millimeter that he cut into the movie in, in much the same way that it was very much trying to communicate a state of mind. I think that, I think that worked a little better. Um, but I agree. I mean, look, it's a, it's a super sad scene. It's very well done. I mean, I'm not 100% sure that it worked, but I, I appreciated it for the, the relative inventiveness. Well, we should mention the way Myra goes out here. I think the timing of, of her death is kind of awesome because, you know, we know he's in the house, but, you know, jump scares are all about staging and timing. And I have to say the series has had some pretty horrifically bad uh, jump scare timing and fake jump scare timing, certainly in H2O. I remember lambasting it. And I think that the way that this works where she's mid 911 call on the porch, it's as good of a shock as, as any in the film. I felt virtually nothing for her. So, well, I mean, not as a like, Oh my God, there's no Myra in the world anymore, but (laughs) just just as a well-timed gotcha. She's definitely a red shirt, but it also felt very similar to, I think, the death of Lori's mother in the first one, where you get her jerked inside and the door closes and you hold for a beat on it, which I thought was really cool. But also, I think both instances clearly call back to uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I think zombies clearly sort of heavily influenced by. It's come up a few times when we Mm. talked about this. So it was I would say it worked, but I, I also I'd seen that I've seen that that trick before in the first movie uh, and he was borrowing it then. I was going to say it reminded me of the the mother dying at the end of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street getting like pulled through the door. I definitely remember feeling, so the second time I viewed the movie, I remember feeling around here where Myra was like wandering around outside as like, oh, thank God we're, at, we're entering the home stretch. Mm-hmm. Like at this point, I feel like the movie was had outworn its welcome in terms of pace. I mean, it moves quickly because right after this, Lori is running through the woods in her Halloween costume as a, as a maid, and she flags down a car, and Michael, again, it's timed in a somewhat unpredictable way, but he kills the driver by throwing him through the windshield of his own car. <laughs> don't, try to, don't try to help her. Yeah, true, true. But he puts the guy back into his car, and um, his corpse pins Lori apparently. So she can't escape when he's flipping the car over and down a short embankment, which is definitely not normal Michael Myers behavior, but back to the idea of him being the Hulk in a way, uh, this is the kind of thing you're going to get. And I think it's, it's definitely unique in, in the slasher canon for, you know, again, in some ways that he's that strong. The car is on fire, but Michael won't leave her in there because he's going to carry her off. And then the three Myers, like we see the ghost mom and the little Michael, and now fourth, the fourth Myers with the addition of Lori, they head off to a dilapidated shack. But they're not going to get away with it, which again, I think that was another surprise, really, in that the cop informs Brackett that like they got a little luck and a woman saw Michael carrying Lori off and the police like immediately find the shack. 
and it's not going the Myers way. The universe has conspired to stop them in this case, which I think is kind of cool. But Deborah needs Lori to repeat after her, I love you, mommy. And I think in Rich's interpretation of this, where it's all about Michael's psychology, that would make sense why that's important. But I, I can't see any reason beyond that interpretation and the idea that Michael's guilt and desire to repair the family to the state it was in when he had human connections. Because the three of them were always good, and he's longing for that. It didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I, 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 it felt, it felt awkward, and I had again, I had kind of the same reaction. Why are we, why are we doing this? Especially at this point, we've kind of established that the Deborah Myers is sort of there, yeah. right? Yeah, she's, like she's there, right? There's, there's, yeah, like there's a an ill-defined something. Uh, that seems to have some need of hearing Lori say this and, and how much that's externalization of what's going on in Michael's psyche. You're leaving all those connections ambiguous, sort of fine, but that's a really, it's a really tough tightrope to walk in terms of making the scene work because, yeah, it's hard to listen to that dialogue and not try to explain it. And there's not a there's not a good explanation. Like, what's the goal of this right. scene? What is, regardless of how you want to interpret the presence of Ghost Mom, what is she getting at? Is the idea that that Michael is supposed to turn this into like a murder suicide scenario? Yes. Is it like? Is that it? Are they just all? Are they are they all meant to die? Is that the purpose? That was my thought. And I actually kind of came by that today. I, if we'd done this podcast originally, um, I don't think it was as clear. Watching the movie again and thinking about it today, it, it did occur to me that, yeah, this is inevitably a murder-suicide thing. And the whole idea of being home and all that, it's kind of code for them all being dead. On some level, reunited on the other side. Yeah, it's not a traditional heaven or hell, but like I think that there is some idea, at least in Michael's mind, if nothing else, that there's a new life for all of them when, once they're on the other side of the veil, the veil of life and death. And the delay here is that Lori needs to be ready. And somebody, I don't recall right now, if it was Michael or Ghost Mom, you know, somebody says young Michael or ghost mom. But the idea is that Lori has to be ready and we need the beat where Lori goes over the edge to make that happen. Like she has to accept who and or what that she is. She has Uh to become a Myers and then, and only then once they're all dead, will they be on the same page somehow? Well, he's creating another tableau, basically, right? Yeah. Like that's kind of the idea is that there's there's preparation to it. There's there's things that have to be done in order for this to be the way that that he sort of has in his twisted mind. Ghost Mom, interesting sequel to the Bill Cosby vehicle Ghost Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I like that we've all adopted that as uh, <laughs> as Deborah. Yeah, <laughs> I I hear they're greenlighting a lot of Bill Cosby sequels now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Oh, she literally, Sherry Moon Zombie has a better chance of getting a movie made <laughs> than Bill Cosby. So there you go. Loomis uh, decides, you know, he says to himself, you're an asshole. He's getting it. He sees the news report on TV. He's coming out. And once he gets there, Brackett dumps a load of blame on Loomis, just like everyone else, to the point of pointing a gun to his head and saying, I want to shoot you so bad. Second time that day. But Loomis, you know, says, I can draw him out. I need to do this. He obviously needs to redeem himself. And I thought it was kind of funny that he is wearing a uh, trench coat again. Like that was his wardrobe the last time. And he's been wearing, you know, a lot fancier clothes this whole movie. But this time the trench coat is black. And, you know, I'm indulging some stupid symbolism here, but I think he's kind of becoming the good version of himself again, but he's still going to be a dark version of the good version. So the coat is black, if you get what I'm saying, because he's too compromised. He's doomed to fail. And I, we didn't talk about it, but earlier when Michael Myers saw that billboard about the book, his conclusion was, and Ghost Mom essentially articulates this, that Samuel, as Loomis was known, you know, in the old days, he's betrayed Michael Myers and the family as a whole. And by profiting from the pain of the mother, he's no longer in Michael's good graces. So that's kind of explains in the director's cut, or he actually speaks. He goes to the point of speaking his only dialogue as Michael Myers, the adult, where he says, die, and kills Loomis very emphatically, even more emphatically, apparently, in, in the theatrical cut. But, I mean, I think that that is sort of set up and paid off. I, gu- I guess it's sort of, like, primal. <laughs> but the fact that they finally had Michael speak and his his one word is die, I mean, I guess it's mm-hmm. appropriate. What else would you say, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's usually his internal monologue. But <laughs> I was I was like, really? Die? Like, that's all we get? I mean, it only kind of works at all, again, in the sense that he did have some trust or faith in Loomis that he did not have in Danny Trejo or anyone else. It's sort of suggesting, and I, I realize it's a bit of a reach and it's not all really there, but he he had Loomis hanging onto his fucking ankles in the last movie, and he did not kill him. I think he had some uh, warmth is not the word, but he gave him a a bit of an exemption and he Samuel Loomis lost that exemption by this point. I like it sort of conceptually the idea that the climax of the movie, especially for a movie that that presumably ends with Michael Myers actually dying and Laurie Strode sort of picking up the, the mantle. The idea that you might finally have Michael speak in the same way that in in the original, you get to see Michael's face for two seconds when the when the mask comes off. I liked it better when Kevin Smith did it as Silent Bob, who who always gets you know one line at the end of the movie. I'm with Rich here. Die reminded me of uh, Darth Vader screaming no <laughs> on the list of like poor choices. I actually definitely prefer the theatrical cut of the ending. He kills Loomis inside the shack, and then Laurie stabs him, and then she comes out wearing the mask, uh, which is a really creepy image, actually. And she just kind of falls to her knees and takes the mask off and is looking at it. And you hear, and that's when the, the Carpenter score comes in 
uh, and you cut from that to her in the mental hospital. So the the implication of the director's cut is that she's dying and and that she's sort of seeing it, but it's that's sort of her the last thing she's seeing. Whereas in the theatrical cut, it's very much that she's alive and in this in this institution. I don't know what what was your guys because I read some stuff about that too. What was your guys' take on that? Oh, I don't know. It's a big mess. That's my take. I thought the psych ward made some kind of sense in the theatrical version of it where she's still alive. In the version where she's dead, I don't know what to make of it. The fact that she's like grinning at the at the mom, it didn't register for me at all. Well, I don't know how you really watch at least the psych ward. Again, I haven't watched the theatrical cut, but like it's a completely surreal psych ward like there's doesn't make any sense that you would have a patient at the end of a long doorless hallway uh unsecured in in a room like it it's very clearly a weird amalgamation of michael's experience and hers in in the hospital and it 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 can't be real as we point out before it's the dream that michael describes to his mother in the first scene that's the horse therapy room (laughs) <laughs> it has to be it has to be longer to accommodate the the white horses. But I mean, like one of the weird, like yeah, not entirely logical, but fascinating things that a story can do is to set up the idea of precognition and you know visions that are accurate years later and even jump from one character to another and yeah i think that it's mysterious and and fascinating but again in my view inherently supernatural the ending of this again i have not watched the theatrical cut as it was meant to be presented i've only watched the comparison of the cuts so i can't really say whether that plays or not but i absolutely love the shots that are only in the director's cut the police shoot down Michael in this one, as opposed to him getting impaled on farming equipment, which I believe was in The Curse of Michael Myers. Yes, the Paul Rudd one. In this movie, that's in the in the theatrical cut, but in the director's cut, he he commits suicide by cop, which seems intentional, perhaps, on his part. And then Laurie walks past Deborah, they don't speak, and we see dead Michael times two, the young and the older Michael lying side by side. Lori picks up the knife and she now has dead eyes. You know, she's, she's got the Michael Myers thousand yard stare. She walks to Loomis's body in a, in a vaguely threatening manner. And this seems like either her version of suicide by a cop or the activation of the inexorable mindless need to kill that we've seen Michael exhibit. A cop shoots her, and then two more bullets hit her in pretty fatal places. And then we kick in a fantastic rendition of Love Hurts, which we played in the first film to somewhat unintentionally comedic effect. But it ties everything together because it really is thematically on point for this family. And we have an amazing overhead shot of all three primary characters lying dead on the ground. The Myers are almost next to each other but not quite because Lori's a little bit separated and Loomis is across from them in this kind of triangular formation, which gives it a tragic quality, an epic quality Vic, as you've mentioned, I think earlier, I fucking love this shot. And we go from that to this zoom into Lori's face 
She could be sleeping. It's a peaceful expression. And we do seem to go into her mind. Though I thought that she lived initially when I saw this cut, because again, I hadn't seen the other one. I thought she lived and ended up in this surreal, but not entirely fantastical, antiseptic looking hospital place. But it really is, it's a, it is a dream about being in a hospital, once I think about it. And we have this strange institutional but surreal corridor that Michael Myers described in the first sequence to his mother while in an institution. And we see that Lori appears to be a patient here, but she has this dark, sinister, crazy person thing going on. And the only emotion we can detect is evil and menace. As the woman in white, her mother, and the horse, the white horse, approach, she smirks. And to me, this means that she's gone over in more ways than one. You know, she's crossed the threshold between life and death that both she and Michael have flirted with. But she's, she's gone over it. She's on the other side. She's dead. Her destiny has been fulfilled. I think that that's really disturbing. In, in, a, in, a, in a mysterious way that you can kind of dig your teeth into. And it, it does have the implication of a story yet to be told. It, it does feel somewhat incomplete. But it is, in, it is complete in the sense that her arc, you know, her, her journey has taken her from a sweet, innocent person to Michael Part Two, And I, I think in this version, the, the connective tissue, the point A to Z... There's a letter in between every stop, and it works. It's also nicely cyclical in that, you know, young Michael at the beginning is actually, it's him peering in on his sister's dream. Whereas, like, the, the rest of the film, you're seeing Lori kind of getting glimpses into Michael's dreams. You mean like the hospital dream? Yeah, I mean, like the hospital dream, like that he's describing at the beginning is like if you if you interpret that as what Michael was describing in the first scene of the movie is actually his sister's dream, sort of precognitive glimpse of it. Yeah, the fact that their shared consciousness goes both ways, as as it would. Yeah, I mean, I think that's awesome. I mean, it's very mysterious. It's not entirely fleshed out, but it's. The movie, you know, say what you want about that title card in the beginning. Like, this is a movie about the sort of blurred lines between consciousnesses and dreams. And it kind of asks you to, to wonder what it all means and what's possible. And I think the ultimate takeaway is we don't know. The, the thin barrier between the conscious and the unconscious and life and death. I mean, this is one of the main things that humanity is fascinated with exploring and we know we don't have all the answers and you know in some way rob zombie has stumbled not entirely knowingly into a really cool exploration of those ambiguities and like dude for me that's pretty fucking cool for this deep in a franchise zombie's up to something here and he's playing he's playing with some interesting cards and he's sort of arranging them in unexpected ways this sounds petty, but it really pulled me out of it. When Michael's mask comes off and like 
he has like the giant bushy beard, which makes total sense. Like it's not like it's illogical, but just seeing his face like that and then hearing him speak and and having die be the one word that we hear him speak really messed up the mythology for me. It really pulled me out of the movie. And so I liked it better when he when we when we didn't get that in the the theatrical cut. The the use of love hurts is amazing, but I also felt like the Carpenter score in the theatrical cut plays in a weird, cool way too. Just I don't know, bringing things to a close and and the tempo is super slow. I prefer the theatrical cut ending, but I also understand and agree that that the director's cut swings for the fences with it. Yeah, I don't know. I have mixed feelings. I've, I like I want to feel the sort of like flowery, you know, resonant version that you're seeing in it, John. But then there's also something that it that does feel the with the with the die comment like it just kind of feels a little tossed off to me at the end. Like the rest of the movie, it bears these marks of these like great ideas that were sort of executed with a shrug. I feel like that carries through to the end where it's like I can respect it. I don't feel like it was incredibly well executed. I am admittedly, I'm trying really hard <laughs> to see what, you know, what I want to see or what the movie has to offer. Like it doesn't make it easy to love this movie or to be fascinated with it. I mean, I, I looked at it this way, like at this point, you know, as I'm <laughs> as I'm still trying to defend a, <laughs> defend the last two hours that we spent uh, to my wife, <laughs> who's <laughs> incredibly bitter at this point. I was like, look, this movie was at the very least, it is impossible to say that this movie was not attempting something that was completely different from any other entry in the series. Yeah. And for that reason alone... Like, you have to respect it. And it's watchable and, and compelling and interesting and, and provocative. It's not always very well thought out. As a matter of fact, it's almost the opposite. But it is a fresh approach to a series that is that had grown quite stale up to this point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think I, if, if you just randomly watched one of the 80s or 90s films and this one, if you didn't you know, care if you're not a historian of the franchise, I think you would almost always say this is the, f the way more impactful as a horror film of the two, you know, like pick whatever one you want. This is a, this is a serious fucking movie. And again, as I said last time, like these, these movies are more films of our time versus the sort of, inevitably cheesy wannabe feature, but really kind of TV grade production that a lot of those Halloween sequels are. They just don't have the, the levels to be explored that this has. And, and I like them. I mean, I think I, we, we got a couple two parters out of those movies, but I just don't think that they, I, th I think that they just benefit from nostalgia and this one doesn't. And I think one day it will, and I think it'll, it'll stand out. So the movie ends up with black and white stills of Michael Myers victims from the first movie. And then they slip in dead Annie from this one. And I think it kind of completes the whole story. 
that zombie is told in, in these two films. It's a tale of bloodshed and inescapable horror. And the last point that I want to make is that I guess in a way you could read the mythology of zombies, Michael Myers, as the inescapability of murderous pathology in humanity. That it will always touch your life somehow. Someday. It's part of us, this type of psychosis. And it's not going away. Ever. Like the character of Michael Myers himself. And I think that latent metaphor or conscious one, I think that this, these two films really capture that fear. The fear of the worst of us. Not the fear of ghosts and spooks and specters. Even though I'm, you know, all about some kind of supernatural explanation for some of these ideas. No, the, the zombie movies are really just about the brutality that we're capable of. And I, I think it works in conveying that. So that's my last thought. John, you have found poetry in this movie. And uh, if, if nothing else, that is, that is an accomplishment because I certainly can't say that about any of the other movies. Yeah, that's, I think that's it, man. You're right, Vic. I mean, I think ultimately it gave us so much to chew on, and that's what I look for. And I'm, I'm excited to, to have it be the, the final note, the grace note on, on the franchise. Plus has some real good dumpers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't, I can't top that. All right, guys, um, this has been a blast, and I'm really glad we broke it into two parts because I think it's going to be great to listen to. I hope so. And I hope you guys, everyone listening, will come back again as we, we give you a bird's eye view of the Halloween series and we pick the highlights and lowlights and celebrate the whole fucking journey that we've been on together. So looking forward to that. And until then, every night is Halloween. Adios! Good night. Vic, even uh, peace out? Come on, give us something. Bye.